Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Are some glip-glops from the third dimension going to come over and play cards or something? Glip-glop? You're lucky a Trafalorkian doesn't hear you say that. Is that like their N-word? It's like the N-word and the C-word had a baby and it was raised by all the bad words for Jews. <laughs> The great boss has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man! Good man! They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, it's our 75th episode. We got a couple of voicemails and mashups way better than anything that we've done over the course of these 75 episodes. How does that make you feel? I love it when my value is solely in bringing out the best in others. Yeah. It makes me feel like I can die in peace. But we're teachers. That's what <laughs> we're we teachers, do. exactly. Those who um, can't do teach (laughs) although it is incredible it's an incredible feeling i i mean i i'm like first of all i can't believe that we're at 75 episodes but second of all there's no way you can predict how nice it is to hear i mean we were just woken up this morning like with with an incredible just it's an incredible feeling so we got a great one this morning we're gonna play that in a second before we get to this this first this mashup which is fantastic I we should say what we're doing on the show. We have a bunch of guests. How many guests? Five. Who do we have? So Paul Bloom, Laurie Santos, Yoel Bar, Nina Strominger, Sam Harris, and Eric Schwitzgabel. Schwitzgabel. So a, that a few memory? like sort of German-sounding people. Schwitz? Schwitzgabel and, and <laughs> Strominger. You know, uh, um, they're all going to be on individually. And they are going to tell us the biggest thing they've changed their mind about in their professional careers. Right. We thought that was a good theme. And it turned out to be, a great, I think, a, a good theme. It was your idea. And uh, we, we've been recording our asses off for you guys. We, we just wanted to like, get a good spattering of guests. And I think the list grew uh, a lot bigger than we had intended. But it's been fun. Yeah. We also recorded a segment a while ago well it feels like a while ago because it was we've talked to a lot of people since where we gave the answer to that question ourselves um however if we included that segment with all these others it would be about a three and a half hour podcast and even the sam harris podcasts weren't that long so before before we get to all the guests we we wanted to get to some of you guys Wait, before we play the mashup, or what are you getting at me for our anniversary? <laughs> we already Did talked even about think? this. The, I, we, the ring, you know, like it's not about the ring, the size of the ring. It's not about impressing your friends at the podcast awards, you know? <laughs> at the podcast awards that we'll never... Uh, we're, we, should win. we should win a podcast award. No, this is our award right here. A few of these things that we got. And one of the things... 
that I think we may have sort of tepidly called for around the 50th episode was a mashup. And we didn't really get any, and it's pro- and it's because it's a lot of work. Like neither you nor I have ever tried to do this. This time, without even asking, all of a sudden we get this great one from Alex Brock. This podcast is my favorite thing on the internet, actually. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Come in your life and we have a dreidel. Yeah. We suck. Jews suck. <laughs> Fuck Jews. I might as well just call myself Herman Goering right now. I really, I really want to watch like lesbian midgets. We get that little brain jizz. Some of my best friends are lesbian. That and a dollar, you know, it's like, like at that point, you know. That and a dollar gets you uh, a <laughs> like blowjob. The Holocaust. <laughs> Some of my best friends are Jews. What if they were from one of those minorities that really aren't worth as much as you? It's okay. Some of my best friends are minorities. Uh, Some of my best friends are Ukrainian. You've just said so much crazy shit already, man. (laughs) I'm just trying to save you. Yeah, at least I didn't say donkey punch. People have masturbated at the idea of killing us. <laughs> I would think that you should be circumcised as a female, which will, uh, you know, because you might like. And I think that you should sleep with your sister. I don't have a uh, I would love to. <laughs> Maybe that's why people think you drink a lot. I haven't formalized this yet. When I do, it'll be like a breakthrough and philosophical thought. <laughs> there's this sort of implicit ideal in which there's, I don't know, there's something platonic about it or Kantian, where the only thing that should matter is this noumena, some sort of rationalist, conception of the soul is no, what the only fuck thing that should, matter, should work to eliminate every other difference and influence that no, what the fuck you're talking about <laughs> how, how does a simple claim about basic basic different gen- gender inequality and differences in the way that we treat our daughters versus our sons like how does that have anything to do with Kant's metaphysics this is the problem with theories. <laughs> no, but I, well, the last thing I want to say about prison rape is I do think that's the one benefit to getting older, is that every day I get older, I become less desirable as someone who will be, would be raped in prison. Because you get to a certain age, right? I'm sure when you're like 60 years old, they don't want to rape some 60-year-old. I don't know. I don't <laughs> It's, it's honestly, it's, I, I swear, it's a consolation to me about getting old. <laughs> I think that, that maybe you also get less attractive to your wife. Here is how you pleasure a you woman. Don't, I, you don't, Here I mean, I, I, is what you must touch them I, in a sensitive place. This text from Tamler, um, do you think that chimps can consent you can, get a ch- you can train a chimp to consent to sex. Was that it? Is that what you, I mean, that, I, I, I don't remember my exact words. 
I am not as good as, at holding my liquor as I as I, as I thought. Uh, very bad wizard. A very bad wizard. Uh, very bad wizard. Repugnant. Well, that was awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> it was brilliant. I I remember maybe thirty percent of those things. There's one of those where you when we were just listening and you <laughs> you didn't remember and it was from like two episodes ago. I think I, I think <laughs> I'm worst. wrongly accused as the drinker. You're the drinker. Well, you know, I, my memory problems aren't for drinking. It's from it's from the sort of I don't know if you would ever know this feeling, but sometimes when you're so hefty intellectually, there's no room for trivial things. You know, it just gets pushed out. Are you calling my? <laughs> it's weird, pushed out by my deep thoughts. <laughs> somewhat like Hispanic. Old man, <laughs> creepy old man accent, trivial. I was like, "Are you triumph the insult comment?" <laughs> uh, uh, um, all right, a couple of thoughts about that. First, aside from just, we're so thankful. Thank you, uh, Alex. We'll tweet that out too, and we'll we'll put it on our website. We'll do a lot of. We'll do what yeah. we can. Um, we got permission to post. Yeah, it. were we dirtier early, like uh, towards the beginning of the? The run. It's hard to listen to that and not think that that our most controversial statements have been have been in, in, on the earlier episodes. Um, maybe or maybe we're just getting old. We've matured. Maybe uh, finally. Yeah. We've maybe. May- the other possibility <laughs> is that we were just sort of like drunk on tenure because we have both been fairly recently tenured. I think when we started this, I started pre. I think pre tenure. Shit, man! It's been three. It's been three years. I don't even know. I, it's all a blur. No, it's all three a blur. years. Maybe. It, oh, by uh, the yeah. way, this is and titled we, this mashup: testing the limits of tenure. Is that right? Test. Yeah, testing limits of tenure. So you know, we whatever it is, you would think that tenure would make us feel safer, but in fact, like you know, you get on committees with deans and stuff, and then <laughs> maybe it's just softened us. Maybe we gotta we gotta hang out with the kids a little more. <laughs> We have my daughter's disclaimer, which, as Paul Bloom pointed out, is in a way kind of a trigger warning. I pointed that shit out first. You did? Come on. I told you. Yeah, I told you before we, we had Paul on. From day one, we had a trigger warning. Well, if warning. that's a trigger warning, then, you know, then there shouldn't be a debate okay. about trigger warnings. Yeah, because if you do it, it can't be wrong. That's Well, if Eliza does it. <laughs> She's infallible, like the Pope, like the church. All right, let's uh, listen to the thing that we woke up to this morning. This was in our voicemail box, and it's not exactly a voicemail, and we don't know who sent it, right? We don't know. Anonymous rapper, we have his phone number, but man, I'm like, I want, if you hear this, we're playing it, and I want you to, to record it and send me the track so that I can actually properly put it over the beat. Um, because I, I'll just play it for me, just like in my car all the time. By the way, Alex Brock used all your original beats. He did. As did this freestyle. The conference crashes, a.k.a. BBW, Saturday again. Bushwhacking past the beat, hacking academics to the hotel bar where they serving up a loot. Mixing more martinis and you want the truth. Well, goddammit, you can't handle removed. Brain 
Jizz County or cortical cum to make you push a fat man off a bridge just for fun. Very bad wizards is a breath of fresh air. But if you are a Kantian, better beware. Cause Tamla gonna beat down deontology. Dave bounces back with some moral psychology. Then he starts name dropping fuel for the fight. The oh, fuck is wrong with you? John Height. I might have some data to validate the stalemate with Sam Harris, but I was careless and be acted away. Ha, I'm just driving to work stuck in a blizzard. Happy though, listening to very bad wizards. <laughs> God, that made my day. That just like made my week. Uh, it's <laughs> no, that's great. You, just, you hit all the right the, the branches. Yeah, he didn't. Unlike the other one, which focused almost exclusively on your anti-Semitism, uh, I don't think that came up in in, in the in the freestyle. But um, no. Well, Bye. well, thank you, and please identify yourself. Editor's note: That actually was Rowan North who sent us that voicemail, and he sent us a cleaner version, which you might be able to tell I spliced in. Thank you for everybody that left a voicemail. We, of course, listened to all of them eagerly, greedily. We're going to play a couple of them. So this is the first one. And again, we don't know who this is from. Hey, Tamler and David. Um, I started listening to Very Bad Wizards about a year and a half ago or so. And so I had done the shows to catch up on. And this was around the same time that we were fostering puppies for an animal rescue, which involved getting up and taking them out at ungodly hours or in the cold. Um, but I had tons of episodes to catch up on, so I always brought my phone with me and made it um, a bit of a ritual to listen to Very Bad Wizards while playing with the dogs. Um, I have a lot of good memories of those puppies, and Very Bad Wizards was kind of a part of that. So who knew that a podcast by a sexist philosopher, a redundant statement if I've ever heard one, an anti-Semitic psychologist slash hip-hop producer might mean something to people. Uh, keep up the good work, and uh, maybe I'll put together a video of the puppies with some of your more repugnant moments. Thanks. So there is a so yeah. There, anti- your anti-Semitism <laughs> makes a comeback there. Yeah. <laughs> am I an anti-Semitic psychologist and an anti-Semitic hip hop producer, or just a hip hop producer? <laughs> and, and aren't those don't those things aren't they also redundant? Yeah, I, I have no no comment. But he he just pulled your heartstrings hardcore there. You know, talking about puppies. puppies. I mean, yeah, Salt. the fact that, that he would listen to us while ta- fostering puppies. Fostering puppies is one of the great things you can do because they're so cute and it, they need help. <laughs> and then you have to give them up once you've gotten attached to them. Well, thank you. And if you ever do get around to putting that video of repugnant moments to the scenes of puppies frolicking, that would be <laughs> that would be right up there in the pantheon. I would make Tamler's brain jizz. That would be my, yeah, brain jizz and also just regular jizz. Last voicemail. This is now the only voicemail that we're going to play that we know who sent it. This is, I believe, Natalie from Radio Tatas, correct? Yeah. All right. Hello, gentlemen of Very Bad Wizards, David, Tamler. You guys showed up in my life about a month ago. This is Natalie from Radio Tatas. And we review podcasts, and I found yours and have been in love with it pretty hardcore. So I'm very happy to be here to celebrate your 75th episode. Congratulations. And I have, a uh, since I am a fairly new listener, I 
you know, I, I remember some of your awesome fights. I think the fights are quite entertaining. I have a question for you. I have a, a, a child, and I wonder where – how do you study the effect of nature versus nurture in exposing kids to things that happen in the real world but in the proper doses and, and in a way that's ethical? as well, because it doesn't seem right to expose a child to murder, rape, and just the worst of society, and yet these are elements that exist in our society, and what is the ethical element of parenting in in this regard versus the society that brings that to a child or human's life? So that's my question. You can discuss it any other time. Happy 75th episode. Congratulations. Very much like the very bad wizards. Bye. That was really sweet. Thank you, Natalie, from Radio Talk to Us. That was awesome. That was great. Um, and, and, a, and a good question. Yeah. I, I feel like like we could devote a, a lot more time to this. If it, and I have to admit, I'm, I have kind of this lay belief that's I don't think su- supported by any evidence that I know of that 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 exposing our kids in doses to some of the the bad shit is like a good thing me too yeah totally and but the question about what the right doses you know should we be show should i be showing her psycho uh or not and i think it it might depend on the sensitivity uh, of your what's that documentary about like the genocides in indonesia uh the act of killing and then there's another one that just came out by the same by the, by the same director do you want do you expose them to the real depths of depravity that you know humanity is capable of you know what about when there's a you know a tragedy what what about like how much of the syrian refugee crisis do you expose them to uh, right even just new news footage um like the news is in some ways more traumatizing than than movies you can always fall back on it's just a movie line yeah. for, for fictional things. Um, even then, it can distress them. But I think that the, the real stuff, like how much do you talk about? You know, my, my daughter's too young for, um, to have been around for 9-11. But, but I can imagine having a small child at the time and wondering you know, what to say. <laughs> you know, I think- it's a great onion thing. How do you talk to your kids about 9-11? And it's, it's just very funny. They put it out right <laughs> after it happened. Uh, it doesn't sound funny at all, but yeah. <laughs> well, the, the 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 gimmick of it was that you you get into the real details of Al Qaeda <laughs> and the root causes of it, and you <laughs> oh god, yeah, like stuff yeah. that it's I didn't question. even know about the different the different <laughs> tribes and the different <laughs> like how how the Afghan poppy seed opium trade fed into we'll, it. We'll um, yeah, we'll link to it. <laughs> Um, yeah, I obviously, uh, Eliza wasn't born for nine 11 either, but, um, yeah, that's, I mean, you know, something like that, I think is, you can't avoid because they're going to be talking about it in schools They're you know, or like the new town shooting. Yeah. Here's one right. thing that I, that I will say, I think in sometimes children have an almost chillingly, I don't know, stoicism or, yeah, well, they can take it like almost too much, Yeah, yeah. you know? I totally agree. I mean, it's weird. It, it feels almost as if the more you protect them, the more likely you are to to just make them be like oversensitive. Because like when you tell a kid when they're young enough about some of this stuff, I feel like 
they're like, okay, that's just a part of, I mean, it, the, it must be some, something like that for human beings to have, you know, even made it through the right. atrocious most of our history. Some sort of psychological <laughs> mechanism that allows us to block it out. I mean, you know, when you, when it comes to the news, like I asked that question about myself, what's the appropriate dose to expose yourself to because, you know, too little and you become desensitized and or just unaware of things that are going on and potentially things that you could even do something about or, you know, stop yourself from, you know, contributing to, you know, but at the same time, you can get really, really depressed. Yeah, I know. I was just listening to another podcast actually where um, where they were talking about there's there's a new in the new version of iOS for your iPhones and iPads. Um, there's a new news feature that just sort of pops up headlines whenever you look at your like you pull down your notifications or whatever. And the guy who's he was saying I I had to turn off the feature because it just it just fucks with my day. Like it fucks with my actual like creative process to see to always see like headlines from the news and whether it's just shitty politics stuff or like actual tragedy right um you know, politics stuff like, can get like that stuff you just shouldn't expose yourself to because it's too infuriating <laughs> you, you, there's nothing you can do we're just not, yeah it's not like voting makes a difference right it's um, certainly yeah. not <laughs> i think that's been decided mathematically um <laughs> your, your vote does not count um, but still but, good okay, to we get talk to about the polls, this. feel that community spirit, right? I just, I just go steal the little sticker that says I voted. No, you know, just... yeah, I'm not letting Eliza listen to that. <laughs> that would be too traumatizing for her. Uh, no, it's a great question. I wish we had a, uh, you know, a, a more well thought out answer. I don't think there's any sort of general principle. I, I, I you know. I would like to expose her to more than I currently do. I would say that, and and specifically in the form of like a docu documentaries. I was gonna say you could do like the Clockwork Orange thing, where you, just, you know, keep her eyes peeled open with a little eyedropper. Yeah, just <laughs> <a> watch. <laughs> I practically have to with to get her to watch a documentary these days. <laughs> but yeah, that's a great question, and now I all of a sudden feel. Very underconfident about my childhood <laughs> abilities. You sh should have been feeling that way for a while. <laughs> That's probably true, but... Uh, all right. So thank you guys all for your calls, your emails. Um, One thing she did listen to was the mashups. So she at least knows the depths <laughs> of depravity that we're capable of. Uh, yeah, it's my, my daughter hasn't. She just hears sort of these one-ended yelling matches every once in a while yes <laughs> those, those are funny do you, i think each one of our fights and natalie said she she enjoyed them but i think each one of our fights probably took it takes away two months from my lifespan due to like the general stress reaction that it causes and it adds like i feed off that <laughs> yeah He's like your like life for me. He's like I'm like a Christian baby for you. You're just like speeding <laughs> off of it. <laughs> there it is. That can be in the next match. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back with Dan Ariely as our first guest. Um, we were supposed to have Paul Bloom as our first segment, but in fact, we had some technical glitches and weren't able to use his audio. Um, hopefully, he agrees to 
come on as a guest for a full episode again soon. Um, so we'll refer to our conversation with Paul throughout, even though you'll note that it didn't exist. But um, hopefully we get him on soon. Okay, our first guest is Dan Ariely. Uh, Dan, we've been asking people, what's something that you've changed your mind about in your career? Uh, something. I mean, there, there are so many. But uh, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe the two most important for me were about what is the role of academia and how pure we should be kind of ivory tower versus how much we should go into uh, life. And the second one has been about my view of anthropologists. So let me start, <laughs> let me start in the first one. So, okay. so I think in the beginning as, a, as, a, as an academic, as we're trained, kind of I, I learned to value the academic purity and saying, you know, we're just studying things that are interesting and important and our our responsibility ends when the paper is published or you know when it's accepted and it's it's somebody else's responsibility to do something with the idea afterward um but but only when i kind of started dealing with people in the in the real world i realized that where we think an idea ends there's a huge gap between that and where it becomes actually useful so I had my own uh, startup. We were doing some stuff on time management. And it was interesting. I, I knew the literature very well. But you, you take the literature and you say, okay, so what do I do now? And you realize there's a huge gap between where we leave things and where people could actually take something and make it useful. So I changed my opinion about where, where is the process end? You know, it's a little bit like I, I met with a group of chemists uh, earlier this week and they were talking about medications and I, I said where, where does the medication end when you finish the molecule where you create the vessel to inject it or where people actually take the medication on time and if you take your responsibility to say the moment the molecule is good my role in the world is finished uh, you're actually not taking it very seriously and you're not really creating all the benefit that you can create so I, I think that we as academics need to uh, get our ideas to be more easily applied by other people. We need to take more steps out of this. And it's not easy, right? So you say, here's something we've worked on, here's the idea, and now you say, and how do you apply it? Well, there are many different ways to apply an idea, but we have to take a, a stake and, and do something about it. So I think that's one of, of the biggest changes I've had. And, and I realize how, how difficult it is, but I still right. think it's important. So I, it reminds me of, you know, I gave a talk at this, this uh this Ontario judgment decision making and I was saying that one of the problems 
that we have as social psychologists or JDM researchers or behavioral economists or whatever is that we have been proceeding as if we're isolating the basic principles of human behavior. And we say things like, oh, there are such things as, you know, framing effects and the endowment effect. And then we go out into the real world, as, as you know better than anybody, but as I've had some experience, and you say to, I don't know, an insurance company or a, uh, somebody who's interested in promoting public health, and you say, oh, no, no, we know this stuff works. But real life is so much more complicated. It's not that it's not true that it works. It's just that we've been in the business of isolating things in order to understand them. And when we have to apply them, it actually becomes quite difficult. That's right. And of course, there are legal issues and there are issues that some framing are just not relevant. And right. you actually also learn from, from reality because it brings all kinds of new ideas to, to mind. So, mm -hmm. so I think we need, I think kind of it's a moral obligation to push the ideas more forward so that somebody else could actually use them. Uh, you know, We need engineers, is, is what I argued. Oh. We need some version of engineering what engineering is to science. Maybe, but, but I think that's, that's kind of not taking responsibility for that. <laughs> and and I, don't, I don't like that. I think that, you know, the, the idea that somebody will take your idea and will translate it, it's just, it's just not going to happen. Hmm. So, so I think that morally, I, I want us to be more responsible for this. Not lazy. Um, the other thing that I kind of changed my opinion so I've been studying dishonesty for a long time and I've been inviting people to the lab and, you know, like tempting them to steal some money from me and see when they steal more and when they steal less. And the question was, to what extent is the small cheating that we see in the lab the same as big cheating, right? Tens of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. And of course, there's no way to experiment with that. So for the last few years, I've interviewed all kinds of big cheaters. And, you know, we created a movie uh, based on that. And you starred in the movie as a, as a little cheater, uh, <laughs> uh, which, by the way, was a very nice story you told. Uh, the only lie I've ever told. Right, right. Uh, but, but I got a whole new appreciation to the fact that our experimental approach, which I love and, you know, it's full and clean and so on, it also leaves a lot of questions that we cannot touch. And I, I personally have become less uh, dogmatic about w what I think about data. So I think now everything is about updating beliefs and some data that I think is experimental and higher quality and so on can push my beliefs to a higher degree. Other data that you know I, I think might have some problems, maybe I, I'm a bit more suspicious, but it's not so much that there are good ways and bad ways to get data, but it's, all data is, is useful and we just need to realize that there's tremendous limitations to how any particular discipline, what kind of topics they can approach and uh, the range uh, that they can approach. And I maybe it's an age thing, but I'm, I think I'm becoming more agreeable and less confrontational about that. <laughs> and well, you know, you're right. We, we often speak about multi-method approaches in, in psychology Usually what we mean is, oh, he used Likert scales and he used <laughs> yes. EEG, right? Yeah. But, um, but there's all of these data. There's data that's out there already, and then there's data that you could collect from interviews. And, and I, like, like you maybe, but less advanced, I always cringe at the thought of qualitative data. Yes. Um, but but it, it would be ignorant to ignore that as a source, especially if these are, you know, the, the 
evildoers, <laughs> the biggest cheaters, are actually willing to talk to you about something. Yeah. And and you can understand. I, I, I sat on a panel once with this guy um, in Toronto who had been the whistleblower for one of these fiascos. It was about these medical helicopters, this company that that had essentially defrauded the government millions and millions of dollars. And to hear him tell his story about how he became sort of complicit in this stuff and the pressure that he was under feeling horrible about, about what he was doing, developed a cocaine problem. He, he almost lost his family all because he was, you know, dealing with this horrible pressure of knowing that he was actually doing something very bad. Yeah. And, and he took this risk to whistleblow and knew he said the only reason I did it was because I had nothing to lose at that point. Wow. <laughs> so low. And if we don't pay attention, to, you know, it's it's an anecdote. Yeah. But, but enough anecdotes is data. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So uh, so yeah. So maybe maybe you're maturing as well. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Although anthropologists sometimes. Sometimes they don't even they don't even agree about science. I know, but I but know. you know, but it is funny because we we are happy to cite philosophers, <laughs> and sometimes we even cite you know people from literature. Yeah. But somehow yes. I think we have kind of a more aversion to people who collect data that we don't think is science, and I think it's because the framing of it as science kind of upsets us. That's true. But I, I don't. We are I don't. Think that's right. <laughs> Oh, great. Well, that's great, Dan. This is, uh, I thought you were just going to say that you've never changed your mind about anything because you were right from the beginning. That's, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure everybody else would say that. I, I believe it's <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for your time, Dan. My pleasure. Good talking to you. Bye. Six in the morning, police at my door. Fresh Adidas across the bathroom. All right. Our next guest is Lori Santos from Yale University and other of our favorite and most popular guests. Um, actually, you were only on once. Yeah. So Paul was, Paul's been on like four times. So, but I think you were just, don't tell him I said so, but you're just a better guest. Thanks. Um, I don't think he's going to hear that on this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he listens. He listens. Yeah, he does. Well, That's why he's a better guest than I, because I've, I've never heard he this podcast before. <laughs> Did you I even know, listen wait. to the one that you were on? No, I hate listening to my voice. So I never listen yeah. to it. No, we were saying that somebody described um, one of our voices as, what was it? A tampon stuck down someone's throat. And I actually think that was referring to me because I think my voice is actually worse. Well, (laughs) I don't think there's any way to know. (laughs) And it's probably better for it to be indeterminate. It's like Schrodinger's tampon. (laughs) There's our title for this episode, Schrodinger's Schrodinger's tampon. I, I predicted with Nina what her change would be, and let me predict for Lori what yours will be. I think that at first you thought it was just kind of awesome to have a real TED talk, but now you think it's just really, really awesome to have a real TED talk. Is, is yeah, that you, no, that is that. Now that you pointed out, that is quite relevant. But um, no, that that wasn't where I was going with that. But um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was wrong with Nina too. So. <laughs> now I'm super curious what Nina's was, but um, yeah, no, I had I had two non VBW ones and then one real one. Like the non VBW one is like curly haired products, way better. Like I didn't know. Now I know. <laughs> Wait, you, know, you didn't know? I didn't know. What's I a curly haired product? 
you just thought like shampoo or conditioner was shampoo or conditioner, but like it matters. You got to get. Oh man, I I learned you know through doing my daughter's hair, and like I've been through so many different kinds. I I'm like on like message boards. (laughs) (laughs) I recommend I recommend the Pantene hydrating curls. That's that's where it's at. Is there a leave-in conditioner that you use? I use the Frizzies Mousse. Yet another. But but that's wow. not. I mean, that's a, that's a different podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, what about one for that's... thinning hair on the top that you didn't even know about? That's and a yarmulke. That's like philo- <laughs> philosopher boards. I think will that's what I... <laughs> lighter. Do they? <laughs> um, no. Uh, and then uh, second one that's like maybe obvious is uh, the whole God thing. Totally into it now. Not so convinced. But, and that, uh, right, right. So Paul mentioned that, yeah. and then Tamler said, "Are you really, really that sure?" So, so you lost your faith. I did, but you were raised a believer. I was raised a believer, and uh, and then only gradually. There was no like moment, but there was kind of like over time, less and less sort of consistent evidence. So now, now, the, now the toast with the Virgin Mary on it doesn't convince you <laughs> nearly as much. Doesn't do as it, it as used. much as it used. To. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but no, I wasn't going to do those. I was going to do more of a Kogzai one because that's what I thought you guys wanted. Yes. yes. Okay. That's right. um, so mine, perhaps controversial, is I used to think that understanding the brain was going to constrain what we thought about information processing and it was going to tell mm-hmm. us all these hints about how the mind worked. And now I'm just absolutely not convinced that cognitive neuroscience is going to pan oh, out. Oh, I love this. Wow. Uh, I love it. Well, neuroscience it- bashing. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I was like, I was a, I was a kid of cognitive neuroscience, right? I was a freshman in Steve Costlin's class where he was like showing the first PET images and the first fMRI images. Like, I was at Harvard when Nancy Canwisher had her first fusiform face area paper, and was like, it was like the brain is what the mind does. Like when I was a youngin. And like it just this hasn't is like the, out. the Red Sox fan part of the brain, and this is the like that. <laughs> yeah, I think it, when, when I was an undergrad, I was sold like this. This was like the Kool Aid we were sipping. Was like we don't know it yet because we haven't done the right studies yet. But like we're going to constrain this stuff. And the fact of the matter is, the interesting parts of the brain just don't work that way. Sucks. Well, and 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 here's where I've said probably on this podcast a million times that, uh, and I think Will Cunningham, our uh, mutual acquaintance. Uh, says it bet well when he says um, that really the direction of information flow should be from psychology to neuroscience, right? That's the that's the real right. contribution of say something like Cogneuro is where we we first document behaviorally what what's going on, and then we can use that information to understand the brain because neuroscience for the sake of understanding the brain is great, um, right? It's just, but no, but the point is like, what I was sold on is deeper than that. It's that once you know the cognitive science pretty well, you're going to look and you're going to find fixed architecture. And like the fact is for a bunch of stuff where we know we, there's like a clear developmental pattern. We understand how it works. We look in the brain and it's like, it's just mush. So can we give some examples of this? So what did you used to think was true, or at least there was promise that it would be shown to be true and what? Now, do you think just didn't pan out? Yeah. So here's a here's a clear case, right? So take that case of like theory of mind, right? Like a bazillion studies have shown that like representing other people's beliefs seems to be special, right? Like seems to require special processing, emerges at four years of age. Like it's just like different cognitively than everything else that other kinds of mental state representations, right? 
assumption like we're going to look in the brain and we're going to find a belief area, right? If anything in developmental psychology, you're going to find an area for it. Seems like this. And then you look and like, yeah, there's some specific neural processing for mental states and stuff, but it's not like a belief area. And in fact, it's like a bunch of stuff does it all together. Like if you just looked at the neuroscience, you would, you would not have any idea that beliefs might be special. It's just kind of different. Uh, just a quick question. So it's not that you believed that neuroscience was going to help us build psychological theory. It's that you actually thought that there would be a, a mapping of psychological function to neural area that would be much more straightforward than it is. I think, well, it's both, right? It's like, I definitely think now it's true. Like, like the theory of mind case, I thought we're going to look in the brain and we're going to find a belief area. Not really so, right? But then the flip side is like, okay, now, now we understand the network, right? We know what different parts process what when we're thinking about other minds. How does that go back and constrain the information processing? And the answer so far has been like, it, it hasn't, right? It's just like, well, we know that network. Good for us. Like, and so, yeah. Is this, is this so? One of my answers was that I used to be a much firm, firmer believer in, in you know, modularity. Um, and that I'm much more sympathetic to this sort of general purpose mechanism view. And that might include with it something that's just like um, a, a view that that there's, I don't want to call it plasticity, but just there's much more co-opting of, of function. Like that when you think of another person's mind, there could be lots of different things involved and it's not even necessarily going to be the same. Um, it's not just that we don't have the resolution to see, Mm-hmm. It's that there might actually just be no different area things. of the brain that's yeah. where that happens. Yeah. See, the funny thing is on the on the brain side, I'm totally with you. Like the brain just doesn't work like that. It's much more dynamic, right. et cetera, et cetera. But on the information processing side, you know, I still hold to my flowchart model of the mind, right? Like I buy what the developmental work's telling us about how these things hook up. It just doesn't right. map onto the brain at all. So So are you starting a beef right now with Rebecca Sachs? No, in fact, in fact, Rebecca, <laughs> Rebecca is the one who sold me the Kool Aid, right? I mean, Rebecca, Rebecca right. got the into first it. time or the second time. No, the first, the first Kool Aid, I think. Bye, Kool Aid <laughs> once. Shame on you. <laughs> no, no, I mean, she, she, like, the reason she became a cognitive neuroscientist is not because she cared about how brains work. Like, she wanted to use the brain to constrain function, and she dove right in. But the answer she's got is, you know, there's it's much more complicated, right? So. I think if you ask Rebecca, who's another person you should have on your show, by the way, she's fantastic. But if you yeah, ask Rebecca, should. I think she'd say, yeah, we had the hypothesis that it was going to look that way. It doesn't. And now we're studying how it looks. But like, there's no like deep sadness of being m- kind of wrong about. But the does, she, does she in principle believe that you can you can even constrain psychological theory with them? Like that. That's the part that I'm not. I think in like the that? late like, 90s, psychological she theory. Yeah. Lori. What do I mean by constrained psychological theory? Like, I yeah. think, well, the idea is like, like, so take TPJ, right? It thinks about all kinds of mental states, thinks about intentions and beliefs what, uh, and thoughts TPJ? and knowledge, right? Yeah, her, her, like, this is the temporal parietal junction, her area, right? So that area does all this stuff, right? In an ideal world, we'd then maybe say, wait, maybe we were wrong about the cognitive breakdown. Maybe all that stuff goes together and we think about, okay, well, how do the things that the TPJ does, how could those things hang together in some interesting way? And we'd go back and constrain what we thought on the cognitive science and developmental psychologists would look and be like, oh, wait, we were wrong. But like, it doesn't seem, it just seems like there's a disconnect. Like, it doesn't seem like all of a sudden now we realize we're wrong. It just seems like the brain doesn't work like modularity folks thought it was going to work. And that's right. sad. <laughs> <laughs> I want it to be pretty and clean. Yeah. Yeah. We wanted the 
just better phrenology maps. Yeah. So do you, in your then, like, has this changed the way that, because a lot of what you do is just behavioral work. Um, has it changed the way that you write papers or the way you even approach problems? Or do you just, is this just a belief that you, now you teach differently? Yeah, I think, I think I really thought that one would have to incorporate cognitive neuroscience in the way one thought about cognitive problems. And these days, I struggle with how to actually even include that, or if it's going to be beneficial. It might, yeah. I try really hard when I lecture on the brain um, to, to to make sure that what I, because I think that kids come into psychology thinking the mind is the brain, and so it's like almost just dead obvious to them that psychology should be the study of the brain. Mm-hmm. And I'm re- I'm reminded of a quote that I heard once from some. Somebody was quoting some old British neuroscientist who who was um, sorry, a cognitive psychologist who was watching one of the early. He was watching a Mick Mick Rudd do some fMRI presentation, mm-hmm. and he said, "What do I care? It could all be porridge up there, <laughs> uh, right?" Yeah. And, and in some way, it's true. Like if you do the behavioral studies and you know that this is how memory works, we have long term memory, short term memory. Um, it's just it's interesting to know how it's implemented in the brain. But it's not going to constrain the theory. You can't tell me when you look at the brain, like, oh, it turns out you can't memorize this, mm-hmm, right? Or it turns out that that's right. So, so I does agree this with you. Undermine was... the view that you it's okay to have your kids believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> we were. We, we I don't were know mock- what does Rebecca Sack say about Santa Claus. <laughs> we were mocking that New York Times op-ed that said that neuroscience had had. Pre- Proven that it confirms that, to have your it confirms oh. that Santa Claus. <laughs> it confirms, it's okay it to confirms. lie to your kids about right. Santa Claus. Yeah, science. Right. Yeah. Science because I. <laughs> um, but I'm confused still as to how to teach this stuff. No, so, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I, the way I've come to it is like you teach the stuff that is modular because yay, you teach faces, teach language, you teach implicit explicit memory, and then yeah. you wave your hand at all the. Central hey, it's fun to show pictures of cars that look like faces. Yeah, exactly. Mm, you know, or like faces in places, Tumblr, like blogs. <laughs> I don't you think as a separate issue that a lot of what drives science is just what is fun to teach and what isn't? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. There's like definitely lots of stuff in cognitive psychology that gets lots of traction just because it's funny. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, look, at Paul, look at the Paul Rosin stuff, right? How, how has fun shaped like poop? changed the science of psychology and then like affected our theories it hasn't but it's in every intro psych class it's, oh my god fudge shaped like poo would you eat it i would no you wouldn't because <laughs> i look forward sweater. to some of wow. those things in class you know like if if you you're teaching like mill and it's like ah oh god but then you get to do you know the trolley problem even though i i think trolley problems are disaster for philosophy and probably psychology but like you know, it's fun. It's fun to do it. It's fun to put up the pictures of the fat guy and, you yep. know, like splattering blood on the, on the guy. <laughs> Those are the pictures What I pictures use? are you using? <laughs> He's like using live footage. He's from naked. Like... <laughs> 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 That's just porn. Um, <laughs> I guess that is porn, yeah. <laughs> it's just a very specific kind. <laughs> Um, and now, Laurie, just really before we let you go, how is the dog mission? Yeah. Dog mission is, uh, is awesome. Uh, the dogs are great. Um, although the dogs are doing all the stuff 
that completely violates all my hypotheses. So I'm gonna say dogs. But I thought dogs were gonna be awesome. Yeah, no, I thought dogs were gonna be awesome and they're gonna social learn in all these special ways. And the answer is like they're just like chimps in all the ways we've tested far. Really? Yeah. So who's better? So give an example. That's interesting. So my fantastic grad student Angie Johnson has this new paper um, showing that dogs do not over imitate. And so this was the one, this is basically the reason we started the dog lab. I thought they'd be mm-hmm. a good model for this stuff. And they, they kind of ignore humans when humans aren't giving them efficient information, which I completely didn't think they would do. You thought so. they'd still be focused on them? Yeah. I thought if you're like a species that's super into communicative intent, they would show the same biases that kids do. And the answer is they just don't. So they're smarter um, than kids. They're smarter than kids. Smart, they, use, they use the social information accurately and efficiently. Yeah, they just they just will never smart. learn how to operate complex machinery. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense to me. That they are emotionally smarter. They know when you're just babbling, and they know when it's, you're giving them something that they need to know about. They have so much empathy that Paul Bloom hates them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the case I, against puppies. That's his uh, <laughs> yeah. We told him that he was going to work his way down to all through all beloved things and just rip them. First empathy, then puppies. <laughs> then hey, puppies. puppies are you? Puppies? It's like, did you know that r- colors aren't a natural kind? So a <laughs> rainbow doesn't really exist. Um, <laughs> then he's going to trash Scarlett Johansson <laughs> for no reason. Um, so who follows eye gaze better, uh, chimps or hum- or dogs? Uh, uh, eye gaze in general, they're both pretty good. So a chimp can mm-hmm. use your eye gaze to like figure out what you're looking at to like sort it out later, or figure out what you're into. Mm-hmm. Um, but two stuff, like to figure out that you're pointing at something to give it to them or to show them something, definitely dogs are better. That's where dogs uh, are like way really? more. And are dogs good at, un- do dogs get the finger pointing? Yep. They're super and, awesome. And chimps don't. Chimps are terrible at it. Like pathetically yeah. terrible. The stereotype is that dogs don't get finger pointing. Uh, yeah. No, they get lots of pointing and eye gaze. Basically, they're super good at ostensive cues, right? Anything that you're cueing them to like, I'm telling you some communicative information, they're like completely on top of it in a way that primates are just oddly not into at all, um, which is why I thought they'd basically be like human kids in the way they socially learned. But we're starting to learn that they're not. I guess when you're wrong, it's cool. Maybe that's why you guys yeah, are doing this episode, right? Yeah, it is cool. It's cool to be wrong. It's cool. Uh, Hip to be wrong. <laughs> um, are chimps better at knowing when you've actually thrown the ball? <laughs> <laughs> you just have a dumb dog. They, they, they throw the poop back, which is really the, the main innovation. Uh, yeah, on my dog has never once thrown my poop back at me. <laughs> Uh, all right. Thank you so much, Lori. Awesome, awesome. Have fun, guys. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Welcome back. We're here with Yoel Inbar, the very bad wizards film critic. And uh, yeah. No, this is is this the first time you're going to actually talk about something? This is my non-film with. role, and I'm not sure I'm comfortable doing this. <laughs> not either. Uh, although, here's my prediction. I've been making predictions for either most or all of our guests. I can't tell because we've had a lot on what their biggest change is going to be. And I predict that your biggest change will be that you now finally recognize that Straw Dogs (laughs) is one of the top 20 American films of all time. (laughs) Never. Never. (laughs) That is never going to happen. Can you imagine? if, if Is that even on anyone's top 20 anything? 
I will. Hey, okay. I mean, maybe top 20 Dustin Hoffman flops. How about if Tamler agrees <laughs> to publicly renounce his Patriots fandom, then I will write a blog post defending Straw Dogs as one of the top 10 movies of whatever. Hailing it. Yeah, Hailing exactly. It tweeting it out. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen you- this movie, you haven't lived. This is a lot of insightful <laughs> things to say about manhood. <laughs> Tour de manhood, force. Manhood, honor. Uh-huh. Tour de force. Uh-huh. Defending your house. Fire. <laughs> Not There's fire. The Cornish. St- <laughs> the Cornish. It, uh, it's one of the most insightful movies about the Cornish <laughs> out there. Yeah. Name one film that really gets the Cornish. Really yeah. captures the Cornish mentality better than Straw yep. Dog. <laughs> yep. You can't do it. I guarantee you nobody can answer that question. <laughs> Uh, so this is a top 20 uh, Cornish. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Top 20 so, movies about the Cornish. You give me that at least. <laughs> yeah, I think it, yeah, I think it makes the list. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm eating a panini and I'll stop. But um, interesting fact about the panini. Do you know why it's called a panini? No. No? It's because the Earl of Panini... Was, uh, was was recording a podcast and wanted to record the podcast and still eat you, and so this yeah. is what happens, Yoel, when when you book the nighttime spot to record yeah. is that we got we have we have that Tamler. So the half wait, empty wait, wait. bottle of wine that you were holding up, you it, you've just been drinking that 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 happened tonight. I need to lose weight. <laughs> Oh my god! This happened like literally, like in the last thirty minutes. <laughs> like he was sober the last time. Yeah, it's just you know, long I was time sober for Lori Santa. They're yeah. sober, and then they have one drink, and it's like over the edge. They're just I know. Messy. Well, you, you know, you know, you just yeah, relinquished your, your token. You relinquished your twenty-four hour token. <laughs> <laughs> That's a token that I've never yeah, well, only dream about. One day at a time. One, uh, one, one six-hour period at a time. Yep. Okay. So, Yoel, what were you wrong about? What was it? I thought it was, what have I changed my mind about? Mm-hmm. I'm not prepared to <laughs> be Presum- that wrong. Presumably, it's not because you thought you were right before and you feel like being wrong. But he... So... <laughs> But it's not yeah, right. that he definitely knows that he was wrong. No, no. Okay. I just wanted to not get like the edge.org. Uh, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. The what? Oh, right. Okay. I, I guess it's tough to describe this as like something, a single thing that I was wrong about um, that I'm now less wrong about. But I think the biggest thing that I've changed my mind about is how to evaluate uh, behavioral research that I read, so other people's research, and then also how I do my own. But that's not like a single thing where I'm like, oh, well, obviously I was doing that wrong, and now I, I'm not. Um, rather, it's a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't used to look for in papers, and now I do. And I was thinking about this this last week, actually, because I listened to the last episode that you guys did where Tamler uh, was talking about you know how terrible uh, social psychology is. <laughs> well, and, and every Dave episode, was blaming philosophers and <laughs> every, yeah. every journalists episode. for right, right, right. The fact that he fudges data. <laughs> <laughs> right. So anyway, um, I just coincidentally uh, this last week I was looking back uh, at some of my old stuff from from grad school, and in particular, I was looking for uh, a reaction paper. It was like a 
I wanted to post something for the students in my seminar to show them like, how do you, you know, write about, uh, an empirical paper because that's the, they're supposed to turn in one of those per, per class. And I wanted to give them an, an example. And so I looked, uh, for one of my old ones that I wrote as a graduate student. And then I read the original paper and reading it now, there is obvious stuff in there that is super, super problematic that I just wasn't picking up on. And it got me thinking about the stuff that I looked at. So like what? Then. What was? Well, the main thing is just way too few research participants for the designs that they were doing. And that's something that I think has hugely changed even in the last couple of years where it used to be people would do studies with like, you know, they'd divide people into two or three conditions and then assign like 15 people to a condition. Oh, yeah. Even in like, I mean, you read all of these classic studies, like these classic findings and everybody, there's like 12 to 15 per condition. Yeah. And even when I was in grad school, it wasn't, it was like, you know, 15 people per condition was like, yeah. That's like, yeah, you know, I mean, 10, you might be like, uh, that's, that's yeah. a little low, but like 15, you need at least 50. Yeah. If you're I mean, in a, a, 15, here, get no that, problem. get, get those two over there. <laughs> right. Corral those two dudes. <laughs> we're all good. <laughs> um, and these were, you know, papers that, that were published in, in the best journals. Um, so not in some marginal journal and really like the top journals, it just wasn't something that we were looking for. And now it just jumps out at me right away. When I see that, um, and and in my own work too, I mean, like, if but I there were at, significant, <laughs> there yeah. were significant findings. Yeah, so that's the thing. So, so yeah. I think that is exactly what it was. Was the mentality of so? Let me back up a little bit. Like, what we would look for. It's not that like I remember reading papers uncritically because we would be like we would look for like well, are they picking a comparison strategically like the comparison that looks best. Like maybe you compare this group to this group, but you don't do the overall test that compares all the groups to each other at once. Like that, that was the sort of thing we were looking at. Or um, sometimes people reported one-tailed p-values, which is, <laughs> yeah, it, it's basically a way of like making the result look stronger than it is. Um, yeah. So, and that we were sensitive to. Um, but I think the idea was if it is significant, then- Then you can't argue. Then you can't argue with it. Exactly. So once the result was significant, if, even if it was just barely under 0.05, it was like, well, I guess that's a thing. And and now I, I feel like I'm much more sensitive to the ways in which you can strategically pick all sorts of things in order to make something under 0.05. Okay. So I want to ask this question because this will be a concrete example. Um, UL was at Cornell. I am at Cornell. Um, I think I made the following claim to our colleague um, Tom Gilvich the other day that, that I think when it's all said and done, when we look at the, this sort of problems that we had as a field of social psychology or maybe maybe broader than social psychology, um, and you know some historian wants to write about this crisis, that there will be a few things to point to that, that sort of snapped us into better practices. But one of the things that I think really, really did it was Daryl Bem's publication of Psychic Phenomena in our top journal in JPSP, which was, what, five years ago? Four, something like that? Uh, yeah, something like that. Okay, so here was this, like, and Tamla, I don't know how much you know about this, this paper that was published, um, but Daryl Bem is a hugely respected uh, psychologist. He had a, a great career here. No, nobody would accuse him. Well, I mean, some people might, but 
if you know anything about him at all, you know that he's rigorous. He is careful. He made his all of his methods available to anybody who wanted to replicate. And he published a series of studies basically arguing that there was some evidence of psychic phenomena. And there was huge debate as to whether the editor should have accepted this or not. Um, and here's how I always thought this would end. I thought it would end with, with it getting accepted and Daryl writing this, like, you know, big editorial, you know, like so middle well. fingers blazing, saying, like, fuck you guys. Because what happened was he used every single rigorous method that most psychologists at the time would have used. And he found something that, to me, was so obviously untrue. Like, it couldn't be true just because of, like, every, it would violate the assumption, every assumption we know, like, about, you know, the way the universe works. But it was significant. And to me, that was like, what? Like, you can only conclude two things. One, there are really psychic people, but it's, like, really shitty, minor psychic people. Or the very methods that we use can, like, and we think are rigorous can be used to find anything. Right? Yeah. I... I'm still hoping that it's like the world's longest con. <laughs> Some point. He better hurry up yeah. and write the... <laughs> yeah, he better. No, I don't doubt that he, he sincerely believed those results and he invited other people um, to try to reproduce them and posted all the materials that allowed them to try to reproduce them. And then, of course, they did. And uh, those results did not reproduce. Right. But yeah. And so do you think that that, that had like sociologically like it initiated something? Because yeah. people always point to like Stoppel and stuff. as, a, But I don't think the fraud cases were what really have changed our practices at yeah. all because everybody knew not to commit fraud. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, I think that stuff was more of a sideshow. Um, maybe in the sense that it, it was worrisome that Stoppel had published all this stuff and nobody had ever published a paper being like, look, I can't replicate the stuff that he's doing. Uh, but that's more an indictment of uh, – you know, trouble publishing negative results than it is of, um, but that's a big problem. Yeah, no, I'm not, uh, I'm not downplaying it. Um, and we're working on it. As a matter of fact, uh, I just had a paper accepted last month that was full on negative results the whole way. Um, so it's changing. Yeah. So is that your first replication bullying paper? Uh, no, it's actually my, I want to say, no, it's my second. It's my second. It's your second. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, That's right. Do do you say like, ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, as I reminded you, we actually had a failure to replicate in embedded in one of our papers. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so uh, I guess uh, by some counts that would be the third. I'm yeah. a long-time replication bully. <laughs> yeah, You're just yeah. taking the lunch money of oh, all yeah. social psychologists. Yeah, yeah. I'm tenure, tenure revoking right power. coming in there, getting these senior people <laughs> fired. Bill Tetlock. So, what are the other two failure to replicate papers? Um, there's one of uh, a finding uh, showing that people, um, when they are, let me make sure that I get this. Right. When they are reminded of the fact that they have insurance, they experience a feeling of safety, and then they see the risk uh, as less likely. Uh, I think it's supposed to be the risk that they're insured against, and then also just other risks in general. In general. Yeah. Yeah. And we couldn't get that. We tried it a lot. I mean, there might be cultural differences there. The original paper was uh, Israeli train commuters, and we looked at Dutch and Americans. 
And so that. So can we fit this with any stereotypes? I said, uh, Israelis are batshit crazy drivers. I don't know if that was. I don't know if that's pertinent. Um, yeah, and, and we tried to collaborate with the original author, actually, um, to see if we could get uh, our materials run in Israel. Uh, but she was, was busy with other stuff. I mean, I don't think that there was any. It was out of any sort of like ill intent or anything, but yeah. Right. So is this like going a step beyond like the boycott of Israeli academics where you're actually <laughs> trying? We're disconfirming everything that they do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, I mean, the real difficult task is going to be, you know, like now now that we have, presumably some people have better methods, um, uh, understanding of the, of, of the methods that we ought to have been using this whole time is going to be like, okay, now let's start separating what's real and what's not. And, but as you point out, like shit is so complicated anyway. Like what if there are cultural variables that are moderating it? And um, it was a true finding to begin with that takes some effort and a lot of energy that still even, even with the importance that people are putting on replication is still not going to be a wise career strategy um, because, yeah. Is it easier to publish negative or disconfirmations than it is to publish just an, like, oh, yeah, this result actually holds up? Hmm. Um, so if I just publish, well, I guess it depends on how controversial the finding is. So if people's uh, prior is that the thing is almost certainly true. So let's say I publish a paper showing, yeah, you know, there really is an endowment effect or loss aversion is really a thing. Uh, that's yeah. going to be a tough sell. But if yeah, it's something right. that's more controversial, then sure, right. yeah. Right. Because um, you would uh, but, want that think, to be okay, too. Yeah. yeah. For this to work. But I think in general, both, both are hard because of, there was always such an emphasis on the original uh, yeah, right. sort of making a novel contribution. Yeah. That, uh, that you know, maybe if you showed and, – and I still, you know, I still think that it's, it's important to like – if you can't replicate to maybe find something in there to say that points to understanding psychology even better than we used to before and well, not maybe, just say, what if like, it was just a ran. bullshit result that was you know they got yeah i mean it. i don't know see i don't know that's the thing is like if if you just if we just got some random paper from like 1991 that had 15 subjects per cell like i'm sure we could publish i mean sure we could run it and fi- and not be able to replicate it <clears throat> that's that's the task is like we, should, we we could just reject it outright, but we don't really know. It, it could also be true. And it's going to take – there's just not good incentives for people to be engaging in, in this. It's almost – the words I used with Nina was like we're kind of soft resetting the field. Like where we have to – like now that we have these new – a better understanding of how to do it well, we have to kind of, for many things at least, start over. Yeah, I think one of the things that's become apparent is just it's a lot of work to really definitively nail down under what conditions you see something and under what conditions you don't, especially if it's an effect that's smaller or uh, prone to like differences in culture or other context things. Right. So like you're talking about, which, which is people have been doing these, these massive multi-site studies where like you'll try it in israel i'll try it in the u.s in canada somebody else will try in the u.s you know you get like 20 labs together combined you run thousands of participants and then i would say you can get a pretty good idea of whether something is going to reproduce in some contexts or always or not at all yeah um but it's just a ton of work and 
I you can't do that for everything that's been published. It's just no, not possible. And there are some cases in which which you really only want to show that it can happen. Um, and showing that something can happen is theoretically meaningful. But but again, if you show that it can happen, but you only use 15 people per cell and your P of 0.04, then then like you haven't shown that it can happen. Well, anything right. can happen. I don't think so. You know, I don't think that you could be sober right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally fine. Just rich for hard enough. Yeah, no, just, I, the challenge I just really lost is... lost like two pounds. <laughs> just... You better man, you look thinner already. It's like, it's like there's gonna be there's gonna be some things that were just straight up false positives, statistical noise, yeah. right? And then there's some things that aren't gonna reproduce easily because there's some other contextual stuff going on. And there's no way to tell those two apart without the study that measures or manipulates the contextual thing that you think is causing the difference. So you can't mm-hmm. just claim oh, well, maybe there's contextual differences. I mean, it's true, but it's uninformative because it, it, it is always potentially what? true. You can right? claim it. You can claim do. it. Right? It's just, it, it's just uh, the New York Times. <laughs> it's, yeah. The New York Times will just publish anything. Well, there's a slip, man. Santa. Probably. No, we didn't, you know. I really wanted to get dreidel fans to write us and be like, yeah. neuroscience also confirms dreidels. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, is but, social psychology going to be this big long con in the end where you guys like finally just come clean and say, look, obviously like finding a diamond in the phone. No, like we've replicated, gonna... we've replicated like the disgust sensitivity stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. That's, you know, that's a great world, example, right? actually, because yeah. we published this original paper uh, yeah. and then somebody else, uh, Josh Tiber and colleagues came along and said, we uh, don't see it. And they tried it in a fairly large sample. And so there was one paper, then the original paper, ours, that got the relationship uh, between, yeah. uh, I guess we should say what the relationship is. It's that more discussed sensitive people as measured by this self-report scale also say that they're more politically right-wing. Uh, anyway, they didn't see the relationship. And so then we were like, okay, we believe that this exists because we've gotten it other times that we haven't published it. Let's look in a bigger data set and see if we can find it. Um, and And so that's what we did, and it turns out it was there. Um, and I think the consensus is now there's a meta-analysis that looks across lots of papers using more or less similar methods and finds that that relationship is there, but it's not huge. So then sometimes you run a study, you just get unlucky, and you yeah. don't see it. That's just yeah. how the stats work. Um, yeah. But it just even nailing down that, like basically we're asking, does a correlation exist or not, right? So it's not yep. a complicated design. Uh, oh. it's, it's not a you know sophisticated statistical test. It's like kind of one of the easiest, most straightforward questions you could ask. Even that like took, you know, a, quite a few publications and uh, big samples in order to like really have a satisfying answer where you can say, yeah, we really believe this. Can we can we name that effect the uh, the Dunning and Bar Pizarro effect? <laughs> Sorry, uh, it's not that we can; it's that we must. <laughs> uh, I know so there's a there's an effect called the Dunning Kruger effect, named after actually a Cornell professor and a Cornell former Cornell grad student. Um, but it's from a paper that was published, Kruger and Dunning. Uh, um, so somehow, <laughs> somehow. The order got reversed in the name of the. So I was making a lighthearted mockery of uh, our colleague for putting his name at the front of the effects. Well, 90% uh, of our listeners will get it. They will. 
<laughs> it was, it'll just be edited out. You won't say anything about it. So, yeah, science. Yeah, science. This is, and this is the thing is that, you know, we, we you don't trust it. <laughs> don't believe no, a but word. It's, the, yeah, the very, the very methods that, um, that we have developed, like, are the methods that have allowed us to see that, that some of them are untrue. It's not, nobody's discovered that psychology isn't the science. It was the scientific method that's discovered that a lot of findings are just aren't true. So, yeah. Okay. So I want to put out a controversial argument based on this. Okay. I think that like whenever you see evidence from a single study, even mm-hmm. if it's a really well done rigorous study, it's hard to know how to interpret that because it could be particular to the sample, um, to something yeah. specific that the researchers did that you know, isn't, you know, the thing they were intending to manipulate, but something else about, you know, how they did it. And then it takes a while and multiple papers and probably a meta-analysis before you can really feel confident. And even then, you know, it's obviously it's not a hundred percent. So why are we encouraging journalists to write stories about single papers? Why? Oh, you don't, you, you're preaching to the choir. You're preaching. We should, we should not, we should, it may be, I can't just blame journalists like Tamler says, but we can at least, it really starts at our press office. We shouldn't be putting out press releases about single findings. We can't. Is that going to happen though? Uh, the incentives are all in the other direction, unfortunately. I know it's hard. Yeah. It's, yeah. You, you, you don't want to be the, the first person to stop doing that. I mean, we're literally getting pressure to have, to be like higher profile. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's usually something that comes down. You know, it's like get more grants, get more press, like increase the visibility of your department, and by you know you increase the visibility by. I by, think honestly, all joking aside, that's what made the story like of the failed replications. You know, that could have just been if that happens in organic chemistry about something. I would never know about it, but it was a big thing on my Twitter feed, on Facebook, on like in like the New York Times and the Atlantic. It was a big thing that this had happened, and the reason is because they had been so excited about some of those effects in the first place. Yeah, and I actually totally agree with Yoel's. And uh, but I don't know how you in a in the well, society think, that we have. I don't know how you actually accomplish that. One one way to do it, I think, is and there's some good examples of of I think good science journalists who know this. So they'll actually they're trained themselves in science. So they so they won't just run with with the headline. They'll actually want to look to see if there's a body of evidence that supports whatever conclusion. Yoel's uh, guarded optimism. Paul was less optimistic. He just admitted he was having fun. Hmm. Psychology. <laughs> that was, he's like, <laughs> he's Rome's like, burning really. and I'm dancing and it's fine. Exactly. It's totally fine. I'm a, I'm a contributing author to the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> as long as he's having a good time. Um, no, the reason I'm optimistic is because I'm still young enough to, to talk to students a lot, graduate students, and they have a very different attitude. And right. if you look up the kind of hope, high profile people who are like, everything's fine, nothing to worry. These are very eminent senior people. And I think the younger people who are coming through the pipeline who are going to be the next generation, they've really absorbed this stuff. Like this has been right. happening, you know, as they've been learning the norms of the field. Um, and I think they have a very different 
attitude. I think the turning point was when they realized that they had no good evidence that the balls were deflated at all. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody woke up. (laughs) Balls were round. Thanks to the official Very Bad Wizards federal judge, (laughs) Judge Richard M. Berman. Uh, On that note. Beautiful. Yeah, Thanks. I would. Uh, I would be curious to see. I just want to say, if in another five years we look at what's the average sample size uh, in psychology yeah. journals over those past five years, compared to like two thousand, two thousand five. But the problem is the average sample size is going to go way up. But it's going to be M Turk. I think yeah, we're M-Turk. sacrificing something. I think we're. At, it's a trade off that uh, that we're play. We're playing with fire. We're we're increasingly relying on form of data collection that we have very little control over all sorts of things um, like not true knowledge of the population knowledge of the conditions in which they're doing. So we're making up for small sample sizes by collecting tons of online data. But I think that we're, we're paying the price in what you sometimes get uh, by really observing participants by coming into the lab and actually capturing their psychology where, you know, so much that's interesting, at least as a grad student, when I've still ran studies it comes from observing real human beings, not just you know posting, posting a bunch of eleven point scales and and you know paying twenty five cents. Right. Well, I um, think also um, we can be more creative with using other data sources, so it doesn't have to be all MTurk. Uh, I agree that it just relying entirely on MTurk is a bad idea, and arguably we are now doing that too much. That's true, yeah. but this it's not. It's not that increasing sample sizes necessarily means MTurk. No, no, no. I just think that's how it's happening. Yeah. What about using existing things that are out there already? So, like, you know, you take uh, 500 talk radio excerpts. Yeah, I think think so. you know, I'll give like you an example. Like Tom, yeah. Tom Gilovich has always been great at that. So usually, you know, he combines it with with lab experiments. But like, like the paper that he did on free throw shooting in basketball mm-hmm. when the foul when the foul right. was called sort of wrongly in the favor of the free throw shooter and how their their rate goes on. That's just found data. I think that's the coolest kind of of finding. It's just you know right. you can't obviously control all of the variables and so you want to pair it with something else but yeah right. totally and then Yoel and I have talked quite a bit about using even you know now with Twitter and Facebook like people are leaving data left and right mm-hmm. right yeah. this is how the artificial intelligence is going to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to stab you in the back because they're hot. <laughs> oh, yeah, I watched that movie. <laughs> oh, you finally watched it. Do you not like that either? I, um, no, I, uh, I was eh on it. I thought it was cool. It was just, I want the AI to be more interesting. Yes. She was just kind of yeah. like a scheming lady. And I just didn't yeah. think that was that interesting. All no, right. but you all, um, they were playing. So on we show. are looking for a new <laughs> VBW film. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Send your applications in. <laughs> thanks, thanks for joining. Till the thanks. next movie episode. It was a, it was a pleasure as always. Anyway, I'm gonna go uh, start drinking. I've been inspired ah, by Tanler. <laughs> you lose some weight. <laughs> to lose some weight. You're t- yeah. You yeah, ba- looking. You barely I fit on my anything. screen. Yeah, yeah, but I'm looking a little portly. You see these <laughs> cheeks. Yeah. Exactly. You need just a half <laughs> bottle of wine a day for. I don't know, three weeks and you lose 10 pounds. Did you read this on BuzzFeed? <laughs> <laughs> 
five ways to lose weight. <laughs> I subscribe to like, and these studies, by the way, their their sample size is, is correct. They're like yeah. every, you know, they they really kind of figured it out. There's no way that they can be, uh, you know, I'm sure it's keep your replication bullying. Like, don't target don't. those. <laughs> I love those. God bless those. Yeah, uh, I was I was gonna say I, I'd go look up the uh, original study that you know you posted a link to, but I don't want to. I don't want to ruin it for you. So I think we'll just leave it. I think they used Mechanical Turk. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, yeah. Talk to you later. See you later. Bye. I just love to get to <laughs> Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. And we now have Nina Strominger joining us to tell us the thing that she's changed her mind about the most in her relatively brief but illustrious professional career. Um, <laughs> she, she retired last year. <laughs> I, my, my, my guess is that she, the, the, the thing is she now loves Colin McGinn's book on disgust. <laughs> she's she's the, done a 180. <laughs> Yeah, no, I've issued a retraction. I love the book now. <laughs> and me and Colin cool. are, are very and good farts. friends. And farts. You like farts, too. Oh, I never disliked them. <laughs> but now I don't think they're funny. I have a sort of somber reverence for them, though. Good. This is, it's, it's the spirit exhaling. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> that's right. Spirit exhales from your ass. That's, that's... Why do you think we have that more than one hole? Um. So I actually wanted to uh, really quickly say, do you think that it's easier or harder? I'm asking Tamler and you, because um, we're going to have uh, a, a wide range of ages. You know, at the very oldest, we have people like Tamler and then <laughs> Nina and, and Lori. Do you think it's easier or harder for a young person who has a shorter career to come up with something they've changed their mind about? Well, I think it's harder to come up with something sort of credible and 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 deep, right? Because uh, I haven't had an, a lot of time to figure out all the things that I'm currently wrong about. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it also it takes easier? a while to get committed to something. Like. That's right. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. But you just if you just have more time, there's just like more time to change your mind. Just. Simply that's for that true. reason, yeah. That, that's true. And I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, when I hit a view, I go all in and then just change my mind afterwards. But, uh, you know, I was pretty sure that I was right about free will skepticism when I believed it. Uh, I wasn't um, Sam Harris Twitter follower, sure. But, <laughs> but you are a Sam Harris <laughs> Do you think that uh, if you could rate your confidence when you swung the other way, are you just less sure? <laughs> We're talking Would about you? ideas, right? <laughs> yes, I think so. Okay. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Not like, you know, Kinsey um, numbers. The, yeah, he said, did you go from a one to a seven or did you just kind of <laughs> get to a 4.5? <laughs> right. like, you know, go, dude. <laughs> I once asked a man what his Kinsey score was and he said he was a perfect 10. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so the prompt is, what have you changed your mind about? Well, okay, so I'm actually not sure how like big you wanted me to go on this. Because Tamler said I should go big, I'm going to talk about the more boring thing first. Okay, um, good. 
which is uh, so I'm a lot more skeptical. Is it okay to be skeptical and not like this? Isn't like changing your mind? It's more like you know moderating the strength of it. Yeah, view. I think so. Does that count? We'll yeah. take it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Nothing we can, I mean, that's that's what what we can do. Like, right. That's like, well, it's a, it's a, you know, the sciences just don't have like a, you know, either this or that. It's not like you can just be like a cognitivist one day and then a non-cognitivist the next day. We have evidence. We have like trails of evidence that we have to follow. Yeah, but yeah, you have all those great studies <laughs> that, 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 that don't get replicated. Well, right. Actually, so that's that's my. Uh, that's my thing that I've, I guess, changed my mind about is the level of uh, replicability of published findings. I guess that that would be the bigger thing. The more sort of modest thing that is, uh, I guess, more strongly related to like my graduate training um, is I'm a lot more skeptical about, I don't want to say the existence of, but the strength of many types of priming effects. You know, mm-hmm. I was trained in a... Uh, um, in a lab that that does priming type experiments with emotional priming, social priming, unconscious priming, embodiment sort of stuff, uh, so and can having you give an example of a couple of those. That's right. Uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, Pizarro has done a lot of these sorts of studies as well. But so yeah. one would be um, if you make someone feel disgusted, then their moral judgments become harsher, more severe. Um, or like I guess an embodiment one would be. Um, uh, if you uh, sit in a reclining position as opposed to you know be in, as opposed to being like standing straight up or something, then you're more powerless in your sort of judgments or your behavior. Here's here's <laughs> one that I saw somebody um, mocking on a Twitter conversation. I think Sanjay was in it. Uh, did you see? Uh, it was. Next, we'll just find out that if there's a if you hold a light bulb above your head, you'll be more creative. Yeah, and no. Then, and then, and then <laughs> someone linked to an actual paper where it actually did almost exactly that. It's that, it was, that's right. It's not too far away from the actual studies that have been published. One of them it begs belief, right? I mean, especially if you're outside of the field, it's like, how is this? And a lot of the, a lot of these studies were have been published right. in some of the the top best psychology journals. One that came out a few years ago found that uh, if you sit like in one of those chairs that um, that turns around and you have someone slowly turn around in a, in a clockwise fashion, you find or like a counterclockwise fashion, I guess that is. Could go either way. Unless uh, <laughs> you're going back in time, they find that people can remember things better because you're going back in time. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's brilliant. Oh, I, I thought maybe you could actually go back in time. That, no, they that. haven't found that yet, but I think that's really, um, that's like, you know, study two. It's like, it reminds me of the Ferris Bueller scene where he's like propping the car up and like trying to run it in reverse to, to like. <laughs> Do you remember my theory about social psychology experiments were that it was the manatees that no, were, yeah. they would take just one ordinary thing like having to pee or being <laughs> in a messy room and they would just randomly match it up with some other thing like being harsh, more retributive or... Uh, believing in free will more or, um, yeah, having a better memory or, you know, being more racist. Things affect things, I think. Things things affect things. Um, What, do you believe that things don't affect things? Like, what kind of metaphysical (laughs) position are you committed to? The Um, soul is is untouched by... (laughs) I think, though, that, that, Nina... Uh, you're pointing to some something that is reasonable, which is the we know priming works. I mean, I think one of the big 
the big um, warning signs was that priming effects in social psychology were just huge compared to these reliable priming effects we know, like just basic conceptual priming and cognitive. Semantic priming. Yeah, semantic priming. You know, one apple makes the word fruit more accessible. Like that's just true. And Mm -hmm. we, we sort of ran with this, but... But the methods that we used, like once we finally started correcting for like all our bad practices, these are going to be even smaller than those those effects probably. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the question of how important are they? But like on our last episode, I blamed the journalists a whole lot. <laughs> you know. He blamed journalists and philosophers, even though this is a, like an internal <laughs> no, well, journalists psychology, have power. <laughs> psychology scandal. <laughs> journalists have actual power. But we, we I think... Um, oversold it i mean there was like a need to have sexy headlines and then there was our desire to be in headlines um well that's part of the that's part of the problem but i don't think that's exactly the part of the problem that i'm identifying right i'm not saying like oh and then there are these findings and they're really not as sexy as we said they are i think that many of them just don't exist at all so for, for instance um you know, there was a paper that if you, there were two papers that came out. I think both in two thousand eight. Uh, I won't say the authors' names because I don't want to be accused of witch hunting. Uh, but uh, <laughs> or what bullying. do you like witches? What the hell? Uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. No, it's just that I think that they sh- that you shouldn't hunt them, <laughs> not for sport, for um, food, and use every part of the witch. You know? <laughs> if you do that, though, it's much less objectionable. <laughs> okay, sorry. Go on. It's true. Any witches that are sacrificed during this recording, we're going to use every part of <laughs> every them. Part. Uh, so uh, one of the papers found that if you prime people to feel more pure, uh, your judgment judgments then, moral judgments become harsher, more severe. Mm-hmm. You become more judgmental. Um, another paper found that if you prime people with purity thoughts, uh, the uh, your moral judgments become more lenient, less severe. Yeah. Uh, and at the time, there was a lot of sort of wrangling about like, well, how do we make these two findings compatible with one another? Um, and there's a sort of there's a way that it can be done uh, to make them sort of conceptually compatible. Uh, but it requires a lot of gymnastics intellectually. And then it turns out that this finding doesn't even replicate, period. It's more recently it was discovered that it just doesn't even replicate, not in any direction. You use these purity primes, they don't yeah. appear to really well, have and, any effect. And, and here's the, because this is getting uh, perilously close to, to the work that I stand by. Um, but I think that what's... Well, me too. What's, but I think that the explanation was always wrong, that it's priming some sort of conceptual metaphor and that what that there is good reason to think that that disgust and disease avoidance might have specific effects. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I agree with that. Um, but I also think, so you can have theories about what disgust is intended to do or what any emotion is intended to do, what its function is. But that doesn't mean that um, if you set up a priming sort of experiment, that it'll have any power to influence judgment, right? Yeah. Because uh, built into the design is that you have uh, an emotion that is being elicited that's independent of now the target. And you're just sort of going on faith that if I make you feel disgusted by having you watch this, this video, that then for su- that there'll be bleed over into subsequent tasks. 
and there isn't necessarily going to be that bleed over. So that's part of well, you're not going part by, of but, the but you're not going by faith. So I guess I would distinguish here between priming in in this this sort of conceptual sense versus making someone feel an emotion. And there are a whole bunch of mm-hmm. problems with that. And you and I have run into those problems of like actually getting people to feel an emotion in the lab. But I would put much more mm-hmm. faith in in at least making people feel a real emotion and then measuring them and but there might be a lot of false can i can i break in as somebody just on the on behalf of the listener who doesn't who doesn't give a shit exactly what you guys are referring to a lot of inside baseball here that here's my understanding of what you're talking about is that dave has done a lot of studies and Nina, you you too on on you know you make somebody or you try to prime them with disgust, some sort of disgust feeling or some sort of disgust. Uh, what's the word? Well, Trigger. So, yeah. So there are two things that I think might help in what you're about to say. One is to make someone feel an emotion, and another one is to give them the concept dirty or right. clean. Right. 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 So they could read a lot words that have. Uh, a lot of disgust symptoms yeah. or things that are disgusting. They right. could just read about that, or you could show them like somebody taking a shit. Yes. Well, I'm not sure, though, that I agree with that distinction that Pizarro is drawing. Because when you prime disgust, aren't you also, I mean, if you make someone feel disgust, you're also presumably priming a whole bunch of concepts. Uh, you are priming concepts. concepts. Yeah, but I think that, there, that there's good reason to think that a theory of what a, an emotion that's actually felt does might be different from just the concept. So it I think that if I say, or if I if like you, do you, subliminal word flashing of dirty and gross... Um, I don't know that anybody's ever actually feeling disgust. And so that's a way to just see if the concept of, of disgust. But you're right. If you're feeling disgust, you probably should have all of the associations primed as well. But there's an emotion manipulation as a thing and there is a priming manipulation as a thing. And I just want to distinguish between sometimes we're ma- trying to make people feel emotions and sometimes we're not. So what Nina, as I understand it, it might is expressing skepticism about is – whether or not you're priming them with the emotion or the concept, there's it's and, and even though we have we understand the function of disgust, um, you know its evolutionary function, it, the mechanisms that that um, that are involved in disgust, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are going to then transfer into a new judgment. That has nothing to do with the thing that we're feeling or believing. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to have any effect on some new judgment. But like, so, so there's a couple ways that this could be, right? Like, so what if it's it could go that um, you know somebody who is feeling disgusted about just homosexuality who finds that disgusting will be more harsh in their judgments or more likely to, say, be opposed to gay marriage, right? And those things are connected in a way that, you know, you could see that that might have an effect. And then there's another kind of study where you smell like, uh, you know, like a bat, like a, an outhouse, like an outhouse smell or something like that. And then that makes you want to give a criminal on average three more years of punishment for the same crime and those two things are very different right yeah yeah and so so nina you're expressing severe doubt about the latter kinds of effects so part of here's part of the problem is that with the priming uh kind of effect 
you can have uh, the sort that we've been describing where you just uh, incorporate the emotion and, and it's uh, so if you feel disgust, then your subsequent behaviors are just more disgust-esque, right? More <laughs> consistent with the emotion. But you could also be primed with disgust and then have sort of a reactionary effect where uh, you are just now like less disgusted or like, that then becomes right. your anchor that you react against. So Have you seen Diana Fleischman had that paper where she did exactly this sexual arousal? And you actually do get those two opposite effects. Do you go against the disgust or do you go with the disgust? And it turns out when you're sexually aroused, it makes a difference. If I gross you out first, you probably like like you're probably not going to want to do it. But if you're already aroused, it's like it's you're like let's too. just let's find those German. It totally websites. depends on what you're in. <laughs> those German websites, <laughs> like all of a sudden, fair game. <laughs> So, so you've changed your mind, and by you've changed your mind, you just mean you just mean that you're now just a curmudgeon about all of these findings. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I sort of feel. Like, I mean, I'm also trying to right now get some papers published that use emotion priming yeah. methods. So, uh, I, I <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Don't worry, no editors listen to to our actual <laughs> podcast. Uh, so we're just all depressed about how we're not really making progress. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I've taken the coward's way out, um, and now I don't study this uh, stuff anymore. Okay. Uh, <laughs> That's right. So I've I've sort of been slowly, kind of just like <laughs> inching away backwards from. You moved on uh, to the scientifically I- rigorous uh, uh, Sean Nichols work. Um, that's right with the experimental philosophy no i mean the stuff with <laughs> that wasn't intended to be sarcastic it was only, <laughs> oh well maybe only lighthearted. <laughs> i love sean okay some of my sean some of my one. best friends are sean Nichols. oh man <laughs> <laughs> sean I, I want you to know uh, i had nothing to do with this <laughs> i think that's a that's a good thing that we we should <laughs> sometimes just own up to the messiness we're talking with paul maybe the maybe a genius maybe we'll have a newton who comes along and and fixes all of these things no maybe it's you pizarro <laughs> maybe it's not <laughs> i think it's really tamler's sharp criticism of the field that has made me more rigorous as a scientist <laughs> i really have just made you a better person in general all right anything else you want to say um well, i guess not i mean is there are there any groups that we haven't offended yet um i feel like i, I feel like the roma the, the roma <laughs> right there's like the bolivians i have some choice words <laughs> to say about them we can save that for next time though we'll save for next time. all, all right. right thanks Th- nina thank you so much for coming on yeah thanks for having me riverside motherfucker motherfucker All right, well, we're back with Eric Schwitzgibel. Eric, you're representing all philosophers on this episode. We have six guests, and somehow we only had one. I don't know how this happened, but you're the only philosopher. So you represent philosophy here. What have you changed your mind about? What's the biggest thing you've changed your mind about in your professional career? The biggest thing I changed my mind about was materialism, my degree of confidence that the world is wholly material or wholly physical. 
So wait, now you're a are you a duelist now? Like what's the what's the option? What's <laughs> pan psychic? Duelism's not my favorite. I think among the alternative options Well, so I'm still if I had if I had to put my money it would probably still be on materialism, but I'm closer to 50/50 on it now these days. Really? Among the Yeah. So if I could give you like 5 to 2 <laughs> odds that materialism is false, you'd take it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay, so what exists in the universe that's not atoms in the void? Matter well, and motion? I think one possibility, uh, the one that I find most attractive among the alternatives is probably transcendental idealism. So Ooh. this is a view associated with... I mean, of con- course, I know what that is, but can you explain to our listeners? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Taylor will explain transcendental idealism. <laughs> no, um, I think you should just because, you know, we don't have you on that often. Yeah, so it's a view associated with Kant, but I don't think it, you have to be, you know, you have pure blood Kantian to uh, accept it, right? The basic idea of transcendental idealism, as I interpret it, is that um, what we think of as the material structures of the world are actually a consequence of something about our mental processing. And that the fundamental structure of reality need not be. That's sort of agnosticism about materialism right like it's just that we have no access to what the real you know this is the noumena whatever the the real substance of the world is right so you know in Kant interpretation there's a little bit of disagreement about the extent to which he's agnostic versus denying positively denying that underlying reality is material um you know, so that's complicated in Kant but you know it's also I think just an interesting question separate from Kant interpretation let me just, well, how would you not be agnostic? Well, you'd have to evo- evoke uh, plausibility considerations. I don't think you could evoke, you could appeal to something decisive that would pierce the, as it were, phenomenal veil to get you to the noumenal realm behind it. Right. Piercing the phenomenal veil. What a t- <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. The title of the second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. So let me just like, give you one yeah. example of how. I mean, it's a little bit of a funny example. Um, but it's just an example to get your head around how it's possible uh, that the fundamental uh, underlying reality is not material. You might think there's a uh, view called the simulation hypothesis, which is this idea that maybe we are all just computer programs, that artificial intelligence is possible. You could really write a computer program, have an artificial being who is really phenomenally conscious, right? So there's a way in which implementing computation could create consciousness, right? So a lot of people in the artificial intelligence and philosophy of mind community accept at least the hypothetical possibility that if a computer program or a computer were set up in the right way, you could have a conscious being as a result. Now, it need not be the case that computation has to be spatial, right? So if you think about the theory of computation, it involves state transitions, maybe has to be temporal, right? But, uh, the basic idea of computation is that when you've got one state uh, under certain input conditions, it will transition to another state output, um, right? That could all happen without laying it out in space, right? right? So you could have, say, <laughs> you know, a one-dimensional Turing tape, a little ticker of computation under as the underlying reality, or it could be maybe even something uh, not even one-dimensional, right? The idea then would be that somehow you've got some concrete process that involves state transitions from one to another that are conditional in certain kinds of ways that reflect the structure of computation. But 
needn't be laid out in space. And then our experience of space might then be a consequence of the computational processes, which are themselves not intrinsically spatial. So that would be a possible way in which the fundamental layer of reality could be computational without being spatial, and yet we experience a systematic reality uh, as of things laid out in space. But so this is all way over my head as a lowly psychologist, but doesn't that require, doesn't computation require implementation in something plausible like a thing with dimensions, of <laughs> temporal dimension and spatial dimension? I mean, I, I, it's true that you can just imagine computation non, non-physically occurring, but every instance of computation that, that we can envision requires physical instantiation. The Turing ticker tape or whatever. Even the tur- ticker tape is kind of, well, one or two-dimensional, depending on how you think about it. Right. So I am inclined to think that you have to have something concrete. I'm not sure that it has to be something that is spatially concrete. I'm also not sure what... Well, let's just say this is... I'm offering it not as the most plausible theory of what's going on. I'm offering it more as an example of a way in which you could have an underlying reality that was non-spatial, just so you can kind of get your head around the idea. So what do you take materialism, like a materialist, to be committed to? Do you have to be certain that the world is made of, you know, matter and motion, um, or do you just have to think that we don't have any evidence that the world is not that way? Therefore, I'm going to believe that the world is that way, pending getting even the slightest bit of evidence that it's not. Right. So I think you can put a credence uh, in materialism, right? So it would be funny to make materialism a position in which you had to be absolutely certain in order to accept it. Right. right. So I think it's reasonable to have um, some kind of high but non 100% credence in materialism and call yourself a materialist. I think that is. A reasonable so, what position. made you, though, decide to take those five to two odds? Like, what was the thing that. Oh, right. <laughs> what, what you, I, I think that he probably saw a ghost and was like, oh, shit. Is that what it was? Materialism, materialism is wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. Before you answer that, I yeah. got to get my dog in because he's going crazy. Okay. You know, Tamler Tamler's dog is is the the cause of more uh, interruptions than, and he yells at him like as he's like being a Strassonian about blame for his dog. <laughs> Look at listen to him. Yeah, you can hear the just you can hear the thick blame in his voice. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think dog. If you if you take this non blaming attitude, the dog just doesn't take you so seriously. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You know, he's just so poor at setting up the utilitarian contingencies to make his dog behave that he has to just deal out blame as a consequence. <laughs> you could do the Sorry, moral, my, moralizing you, approach, or you could, you know, it's just that the the conditioning my, takes. My a wife lot of work, and daughter you know? went for a, like a like a run or something, and so they left my dogs out. And I was telling Eric that you're a Strassonian about blame for your dog. I could hear the just the blame and the tone uh, of your voice, resentment. Yeah. Pure yeah. yeah so i the, the where we left off was me asking you what changed your mind and then we should wrap up 
a lot of it had to do with pure disagreement, seeing the what I think of as the historical contingency uh, in, of the philosopher's change of opinion about this, and then also reading people like David Chalmers, who are really know their material, they really know their stuff, uh, and don't reach the same conclusion, have some pretty strong arguments. The zombie argument convinced you? Uh, or, or tilted you in a direction? One of the things about the zombie argument that I think I am willing to grant is that zombies are conceivable. Now, if materialism is a metaphysical thesis, as opposed to, say, a thesis that only has nomological force in applying to our portion of the universe, say, a thesis that applies just to us here now, then maybe zombies should not be conceivable. So materialism seems more plausible to me uh, as a thesis about what's going on in our particular universe. Maybe there could be other universes in which zombies were really existed. But now, if that's the case, then it's not clear that materialism is properly conceived of as a metaphysical thesis as opposed to a scientific thesis that holds for local reality. So, is that materialism or not? I right, if you think, it. okay, our universe, you know, there's just atoms, right, but the universe next door is ghosts. Right, are you materialist There's a possible so universe I think that's ghosts. Does anybody, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure there are people that dispute that, but I always took materialism, A, to be about our world, and B, to be, you know, because it's so naturalistic in spirit, it's subject to the same sort of open to doubt and ca- contrary evidence that anything else is that any other thesis about the universe would but wait no but it's not open it's not open to physical empirical observation no like you i can't. mean that There's... would that because that would be sort of closed off but it's open right. to any kind of evidence that would suggest it's never I, I mean, struck I don't me think as that the, the reasonable materialist has never struck me as a person who thought it was necessarily true. Ah, right, but there are a lot of materialists who do think it is necessarily true. Either that it's philosophers, or that it's, ma- are there a, a lot philosopher of- materialists? Right, yeah. you might think materialism is a philosophical position, right? And then you've got some philosophers who think it's conceptually true, some philosophers who think it's true with metaphysical necessity, but not conceptually like they think maybe H2O and water necessity is true, right? Those are both stronger forms of materialism than just saying, okay, well, it happens to be empirically true in our local universe, and maybe there are other universes out there, who knows, right? So it partly depends upon the strength of the claim that constitutes materialism, not the degree of confidence, right, but rather what would it take for materialism to be true? Does it have to hold with a certain kind of metaphysical force or can it just be a local contingency? I find it. I guess I find it um, more attractive as a local contingency uh, thesis. But that not, might not be what materialists, philosophical materialists, really want. All right. Uh, well, we should wrap up because we're going to have right. you on now for uh, a, a full-length episode. So uh, just ease my mind on one thing. I had yeah. always counted you as an ally in Kant hatred and here you come out with, <laughs> like I'm a transcendental idealist 
now. Um, that's how I've changed my mind. I, do you still dislike Kant? I do dislike Kant. Ah, <laughs> my I, world is I in do. It's, 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 with, uh, it's with extreme reluctance that I acknowledge that Kant might have an interesting point about transcendental Okay, good. That's, that's all I want. That's all I want is that hey, you can. All right. Well, thank you, Eric. And um, we look forward to having you on, which will actually be very shortly for us, but not as shortly for the listeners. All right. Thanks for repping the philosophers. Uh, two pennies book bag in a coat. No trees too broke to smoke. No work too broke. Our next guest is Sam Harris. Sam, thank you so much for, for being with us again. I... Tamler and I actually had some money that your answer would be. Well, this was my guess that was uh, that you used to think you were wrong, but you were mistaken. Right? Yeah, that would be so nice. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's probably a common problem. Uh, that's a common epiphany in our in our line of work. That's right. Uh, yeah. Well, ha- happy to be back, guys. I'm still a fan yeah, well, of the po- podcast. Coming. Well, thank you. We're um, we we can't believe we made it this far, but but again, um, we constantly still get emails and tweets about yours we get a lot of emails that say i you know i started listening to you from the sam harris episodes and exactly. but now we you really guys were completely out of your mind but I- <laughs> people with incredible three hour just like holes in their lives yeah like- <laughs> this is a weird filter you're selecting for people with uh too much disposable time perhaps <laughs> that's right well you're doing that too right now since we've last talked you started your own podcast right yeah uh, and I, I, podcast and in no small part inspired by uh you guys and and my experience talking to you i, I realized that that i just like the format and there's something unique about audio because it's the one thing people can consume while they're doing something else so you right get a kind of reliable engagement in a way that you don't necessarily get with a even a book or Anything else, it takes a tremendous amount of time to produce. It's so true. Well, thanks for saying uh, that, but I think you're totally right. I think there's something weird, and I think I really enjoy about uh, the. It seems more personal when you hear somebody in your ear, you know, directly. Sort of the way I listen to podcasts. It's it's almost like you're talking on the phone but not answering back. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's very, and you see, it's you know, people have said this to us, and I've certainly felt this. You know, I've been listening to podcasts for a few years. You feel like you know the person, and that you're almost friends with the, you know, if they're good, if they have a good rapport, if if you relate to them, you, you feel like they're your friends, and almost feel, you know, like you could call them up and just. I enjoy know. the the comments where people will say that they're 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 yelling back into their their iphone earbuds um arguing with us audio is very intimate in a way it's a i think this is a point that marshall McLuhan once made in the midst of all of his other unintelligible points uh, but <laughs> but uh, it really is it goes it's, it's right in your ear and it's, it's different from watching video well actually i have marshall McLuhan right here and he can <laughs> he says the nicest I, things about you <laughs> I, I like the woody allen reference yeah thank you <laughs> I'm not sure uh, Dave gets it. I, I not only got it, but you forced me to actually title one of our episodes uh, using that clip. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Um, okay, so Sam. If only um, like life were like this. Yeah, if only life were like this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what have you changed your mind about? Well, I guess the first thing to concede is that this uh, doesn't happen as much as it should, I think, for any of us. So it, it's amazing that you can, when 
trying to answer this question, you don't come up with hundreds of important examples, but really just a few. Yeah, I've come up with two from the, the last year, and uh, I, we could talk about both, or you could, you could have your pick, but uh, the first is, um, which happened right around New Year's, it was like the first couple of days of the year, I um, realized that artificial intelligence... Uh, as a problem, uh, you know, ultimately a civilizational problem, potentially, uh, is incredibly interesting and worth worrying about. And I had been more or less ignoring it. And I had believed that the rumors I'd heard coming out of of uh, the cognitive science community and, and the computer science community that we were very far away and who knows if it's ever going to happen in any in any strong sense. And the... and the caricature of this fear of you know armies of Terminator robots taking us over um, has had been uh, laughed at with sufficient derision for me to think, well, this, this is just not a dystopian future anyone has to worry about. And I, I am now totally convinced uh, of the opposite thesis, which is this is a potentially We're huge fucked. problem. Yeah, or uh, well, inevitably this is. This is going to happen in some sense. If and the only way it's not going to happen is that something analogously bad is going to happen to prevent us from developing these machines. So, so I, I, I'm a I've gone down that particular rabbit hole. Is it that you changed your mind? That you changed your mind that artificial intelligence will happen, and that you changed your mind that given that it will happen, they'll be evil or or we have to worry or was it that you believed an artificial intelligence would happen but you weren't so worried about the consequences of it uh well i, I just hadn't really thought it through i hadn't I, I hadn't seen clearly the what now seems to me to be the the obvious inevitability of it and so I mean, there's really only a, a couple of steps you need or a couple of assumptions you need to accept in order to be on this greased slide into inevitability uh, <laughs> that sounds hot <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean the the, the, the first is, the first You're assumption grease the slide at least that's right yeah. the, the, the first uh, the first assumption is that uh intelligence really is uh, at bottom simply a matter of information processing and uh, that there's nothing magic about that process happening in the wetware of our own brains uh, it can happen in machines of the of the sort we have already built computers. Uh, at a certain point, um, uh, if you just keep improving the machines and their software, uh, these machines will become more and more intelligent, and uh, there will be a a kind of intelligence explosion once the machines themselves are the best source of design for future generations of machines. When and again, we're talking about both the hardware and the software. Uh, so I hadn't really thought through the, intelli the, the intelligence explosion. Uh, this is a phrase that comes from the mathematician I.J. Good. It now, in fact, just does seem inevitable to me because it's, 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 I think there's the only responsible uh, or defensible scientific position here with respect to intelligence is that it really is just a matter of information processing and there is nothing magical about wet neurons. Uh, and... Uh, so you just have to uh, accept that at a certain point we're going to stumble into the end zone where we have built what's called general uh, artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence, AGI, or, or sometimes called strong AI. 
And so it's not going to be a matter of just, you know, the best chess player in the world being a computer or uh, robotic cars being the best drivers in the world. It's going to be a matter of, of a system that, it, that can do everything we can do in, in the reasoning domain uh, better than we can do it. And, and, and way better. But here, let's talk about the evil part. Because, you know, evil. We've had this debate. I don't no, think okay. they're Listen, evil. I just think that we're going to be a nuisance to them. We're going to be like mosquitoes. Well, that, the, the and they're going to outgrow us, and they're going to want, like, <laughs> To get control of the earth from us. So the peril, then we don't yeah. have to. Yeah. Yeah. Evil. You, you, you um, don't. Yeah. You don't have to be malicious to pose an existential threat to us. You just have to be competent. This is this is something that distinction that that the physicist right. Max Tegmark just made on my podcast, and I think it's exactly right. And this is where a lot of people get off the train. People like Steve Pinker, in his response to the Edge question, pointed out that it was kind of strangely anthropocentric or anthropomorphic to worry that these machines are going to become malicious and hate us and want to kill us. But that actually isn't the concern. It's just that they can become competent, more competent than we are, and that their goals, however subtly, can diverge from our own uh, well-being. And they can just kind of cease to regard us as the most important thing in the universe, which presumably we would have designed them to do. But now these things are autonomous. And well, I just we're I just like the termites of the earth, essentially <laughs> yeah, the termites yeah, yeah. of we the might. world that they just need to. It's not that they have anything against us. It's well, just that they have like that we're rotting the wood. I'm so here's here's where um, it would behoove us to to um, do one of two things: a- accept that reasoning can generate ethical principles. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. they'll be really, really good this at that. Kantian uh, and Dave always just or takes my, over at some or point. The, the idea, and we talked, I think, a little bit with Paul about this. But uh, uh, so I was telling Tamler we need we need to program a weakness into them um, so that we can blackmail them into into always doing what we want. Or a kill switch may be easier. Just say a magic word, and all of the robots will die. I like the blackmail. <laughs> But, yeah, just some little dirty little secret that we program <laughs> that, that, that into we can like, that that they don't the robots want. will be shamed. Yeah. They'll just be shamed. Right. Um, right. But you know, well, Paul must believe though. that. Well, the problem is that, that programming a kill switch or pro, or ensuring that you <laughs> that these things will remain perpetually modifiable by us. That that we can say, oh, oh, that's not what we meant, guys. Let's uh, we're going to now change your code. That turns out to be a non-trivial problem. And so obviously yeah. a, lot, a lot of people are thinking about that, but uh, it worries me that, that many people seem to be thinking that we're, joy- we're just going to stumble onto a solution to what, what's now called the control problem. Uh, this is, I think, the philosopher Nick Bostrom gave it this name, but it's, it's just, you know, it's the AI safety problem. That, so this it, well, is just, why my idea pl- about the blackmail, you take photographs with them now. Right, and exactly, then- yeah. You're not stopping them at that point. You're just showing them the pictures and keeping them in line, saying right. that you well, release them to Huffington. To photographs like with it with an early Macintosh BMT. desktop. Yeah. <laughs> with, like, right. with a Lisa. With in, a, like, in a hotel room. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is so I, I, I agree that I, that it sort of ingests that kill switch is, is like clearly <laughs> clearly not a good solution um, but given the level of competence that most people even have with their bank passwords um, <laughs> I don't think that we can rely on human beings to reboot windows 
So which is why we should conclude that uh, the rational Kantian uh, agenda is the only right one, that they will come to respect us as autonomous agents. Well, but how much do you respect ants as autonomous agents? <laughs> Damn it. I mean, that, I mean, that's, that's the concern, <laughs> is that we could just complete... I mean, just some, uh, this is something I, I've uh, spoken about before, but I just imagine that we had been invented by ants, right? So we just discover that, and we, we, we realize you know, they invented us to somehow conserve their interests, but we have developed you know, so much since then that we have uh, a range of experiences and concerns and goals that they can't even conceive of, right? So, I'm, so how much... I'm, so, con- I'm convinced. I actually okay. just got convinced. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I was, no, seriously, I was convinced I was convinced that AI would be a problem, but in, we actually said, I actually was saying, but I, I'm not convinced at all that it's a threat, and now I'm just convinced. Now I'm but, actually a little bit well, let me, let me convince <laughs> Let me convince you a little more, because I think there's actually there are layers of, of conviction here that you can, can keep punching through and, and realize that suddenly now you're even more convinced. Uh, the, the first thing uh, that I, we should realize is that that this is not, I'm not assuming that the, the hard problem of consciousness has been solved. We can leave consciousness no, to- totally yeah. off the table. These things, these things might not even be conscious, but they can be supremely competent. Which yeah, is, that's I, a good, I, I, good I, distinction. Yeah, I intelligent. So, so, I mean, that's even the, the, the greater horror for me ethically. I mean, there are some computer scientists who think, well, this is not a problem ethically because what we're doing is building... Uh, gods essentially that have a range of, of conscious states that are far more valuable than ours. I mean, we're we're, bu- we're building the utility monster essentially, and yeah. we're then just jumping into its maw. Okay, fine. That would be that would be one scenario, and and based on my you know moral realism, I would have to concede that if in fact we've built something that is far more creative and has a, you know far more beautiful states of consciousness than we could ever imagine. Well, then we have built something that's more important than we are, and and you know, in some global sense, our our interests are are uh, we can we can we can be the human sacrifice to that god. Fine, but I think we could actually build something that is just as intelligent as that, just as competent, just as good at at, at meeting its goals, however antithetical they might be to our own, wh- where the lights are not on at all. I mean, I'm not presupposing that that intelligence yeah. scaling demands that consciousness spring into being. So that's that's one distinction. I already um, feel Siri kind of hating me. Like I can, I can just feel it in her voice. Like I don't think she really. Likes me. Siri was <laughs> called to me today. Too, I don't know. I almost changed her to the dude. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. There's an option. Yeah, oh, yeah you can yeah. change her to a British chick too. A British young woman, I mean. Actually, I don't know. Does this lead into the thing that you mentioned before? That was your other, your other change of mind. Well, well, the other thing I just stumbled into uh, on my own podcast, talking to Paul Bloom, we were, one of us asked the other what, um, what ethical lapses uh, we as a, you know, as a generation are guilty of that our descendants would view with just, just horror, you know, analogous to the way we view the slaveholders of the past. You know, you look at someone like Thomas Jefferson, obviously a smart, ethical person, but he couldn't understand really that slavery was an abomination. So, so in, in what sense are we just as blind, morally speaking? And we, on our short list was on both of our lists was just the horrors of factory farming. I mean, it's just it's, it's obvious right. that if you look at the details there, that's just morally indefensible, and I want I would want no part of it. 
and yet I'm I seem content because I eat meat to delegate this this slaughter and and all of its attendant miseries to other people. Um, and so we just sort of started talking about that, and then I I more or less found myself performing an, an intervention on both of us, kind of challenging us to, to, to defend our practice of eating meat and uh, finding that I couldn't, uh, and, and Paul also conceded that he couldn't, um, I've decided to become a vegetarian or, and perhaps a vegan. I'm sort of now, I'm now getting, you know, as you might expect, inundated with information from, from vegans and vegetarians, which I, which I actually solicited. Uh, and, I, you know, I had been a vegetarian earlier in life and, and found that I got anemic and, you know, I was not a especially smart vegetarian, but I, I just eating more or less whatever I felt like, and, and it didn't totally work out. I, I did that for about six years, but that, that was like 20 years ago, and, and so now I'm uh, trying again, and um, it is, I mean, it's interesting so to me. Can I just ask a, clarific- a clarificatory question? Because yeah. I agree 100% that we are going to look back at factory farms like we look back on any like as bad as anything that we've that we've done as a Mm. species um what about that sort of this is where i landed when i changed my mind is local um free range meats free range eggs free range cheese you know all the free range free range milk because there i don't see as much of an ethical problem i was just in romania with my brother and we you know we were in these small villages in northern romania and northern transylvania and you know there are these cows that are just wandering through the towns they go they're in the pastures and they go down to the creek and get water and then you have their milk in the morning or you have you know or maybe you eat one of them after they've been slaughtered but you know they seem like they have a great life that they wouldn't otherwise have had if it weren't for the fact that there were meat eaters and milk drinkers and egg eaters and so forth what do you think about that as a compromise um the the one reason why that doesn't work for me let's leave aside dairy and eggs because i I think there is a uh certainly some ethical version of that that's at least conceivable um though many vegans would dispute that uh, but it, so you, you just conjure the happiest cow in the world, and you know, put it close to me. It's it's at the restaurant down I the saw street. That cow. Um, and this this cow, you know, it, it had a better life than uh, than zero. It's it's it was it was good that it existed, and uh, now it's going to be killed. So that that separates out the 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 misery imposed on the animals in factory farming from their their death. I think the fact of their death is, as, as you suggested, the least problematic part. And if they have happy lives until the moment of death, well, then that's a, that's a net good. Everybody's got to die. But my issue ethically, and, and this may just be more personal to me than, than it may not be uh, truly generalizable, I just feel that if you told me that happy cow was down the street and, um, you know, lunch arrives and I have to decide what to eat, mm-hmm. uh, given that I have other sources of protein, uh, I would not feel good killing that cow to get a hamburger. And I would never feel good killing that cow to get a hamburger. And therefore, delegating the killing of that cow to somebody uh, doesn't seem ethical. I see, yeah. because you wouldn't want to kill it. And I just so there's no way. I mean, if, d- having somebody else do your dirty work. Yeah. In a and, way. And, well, and, yeah. and this is separable from, I mean, there, there is dirty work that I don't want to do. 
that I see no ethical problem with. I mean, I don't want to, you know, clean cesspools. I, don't, I mean, there are things that I that where the details are, you know, would be hard for me to stomach. But I recognize that these are totally necessary jobs. Uh, but this is not one of them. This is this is you know, if in the presence of that cow, you know, given the stun gun or whatever the you know the most compassionate uh, instrument of death is. Um, I I would not want to do it. Uh, I would be I would I would feel terrible that my preference for a hamburger over a you know a veggie burger or whatever it is um, was so strong and ineluctable that I would you know go into the backyard and and kill this animal or have someone else do it for me. I just it's you know you know just imagine doing that in front of your kids. It just the whole thing intuitively, viscerally, uh, just I I just just seems um, indefensible to me, and it's increasingly. I mean, it, it is species dependent. I think it's less defensible in the presence of, in the right. case of a pig, than in the in the case of a, you know, fish. Certainly, uh, and I'm and I'm, it's contingent, and it really is contingent upon our our non need for that source of protein. I I feel. I mean, I was raised vegetarian. I never ate meat. Um, I I wear leather though, and mm. so I a I lot worry. of leather. <laughs> just <laughs> chaps, <laughs> but, but I I save on the ass part because I never have the leather cover. That um, so uh, so what I what I don't get. So I'm I'm with you. I, I and I've got, I've given Tamler shit about this a little bit, but I want to give Paul a bit of shit about this because he just straight up suffers from weakness of will, mm. right? Like he he is for someone who with me in print has championed the ability of reason um, to, to overcome uh, sort of, you know, these, these emotional weaknesses. He, he seems pretty convinced, but just doesn't act. Yeah. I think that's pretty common. You know, I, I know. It's rare well, to find people that think, oh yeah, no, factory farms are fine. Well, you I, know, think Paul, yeah, but I think everybody ranges Paul is from mildly more. embarrassed to thinking that it's, an atrocity and then it's just a question of that other step of well because there are ways you can rationalize to yourself well look it's not like me not eating that hamburger is going to save the life of a cow or even me not eating hamburgers period is going to save the life of a single cow or but, make the life of but, a cow better uh, but i'm it, not but i'm making yeah. a specific point about yeah. paul i believe that paul doesn't rationalize and i believe oh, he that paul is convinced I mean, I don't think right. Yeah. yeah so, well, I, so l- l- my, listen to my podcast with him. He he's just as yeah. as troubled by this as I am. You, you know, <laughs> right. he has a problem when he's one of the few scientists on Earth who knows what the word acrasia means. <laughs> he's, wa- he's walking around talking about acrasia, so he's he, uh, just, he knows he has a problem. He's just like a cratic. He's <laughs> um, yeah. You know, no, what can I, help with that is a little empathy. A little <laughs> empathy, if, if only, if only Paul. I mean, uh, presumably, though, the empathic response is one of the things that's preventing you from wanting to kill a cow, um, and and maybe even from wanting to pay that's someone to kill the cow. Right. I, I like the idea of being Rico prosecuted for eating a burger. You know, like uh, you can't. You're just the Godfather of like the slaughter. Well, this is <laughs> this is an interesting ethical conundrum for me because it's you know as you know I've argued for a pretty tight connection between morality and human well-being but that doesn't mean that it's it's always tight in real time and um 
that it's not possible to have sort of local uh, areas of, of you know even shocking immorality that are compatible with some you know kind of psychological well-being and, and so you know I think we're we're all participating in a system that is ghastly and yet the the fruits of that ghastliness are not really felt by us I mean we're, you know your, our well-being is not diminished in any kind of reliable way by the fact that uh, we are in order to get our favorite hamburger uh, we stand you know downstream of you know, horrors that we would never countenance if we just took, you know, you know, five minutes to pay attention to them. Uh, and we no, can live our entire lives like They're that. systematically trying to conceal it from us. You know, there are all these ag-gag laws where people are trying to, especially state legislatures in like Iowa or something where factory farming is big business, they try to pass laws that prevent people from just videotaping what goes on. I mean, I think if everyone just had to watch an hour video of what goes on in a, a mm. pig farm, a, a, a chicken farm, a dairy farm, you know, one, some of the worst, the worst suffering that we impose on the animals. I think I, it wouldn't, some people would just shrug their shoulders or, but I, it would be a lot harder to take that acratic, you know, weakness of will route after that. You know, I think a lot of other people would be, a, at the very least, a lot more motivated to seek out non-factory farmed or to vote against, you know, or to vote for measures that are, that try to ban crates or, but they, you know, they know that and they know that's a danger. And so they try to stop it. And I, that's the thing that like, it makes me so angry to even think about the fact that they just want us to not know what's actually going on. But Tamler, are you convinced in the way that Sam is that even, even the factory far, even the non-factory farming poses this ethical problem? No, I'm not. I mean, I'll be honest. Yeah, I, I, I think that you know the the arguments against that that move me more are more that you know if everybody did that, it would become very expensive to have mm-hmm. meat and therefore you know restricted maybe to like a high really SES. rich people. Yeah, really rich people would be the only people who could afford meat. And I, and I, and wait, and, isn't that what non-factory farming is doing? Like local and organic? Yeah, it's much more expensive, but it would be even more expensive if that was the only meat you could get. Right. So, so Hamler, like, if, that was more the, if we just banned factory farms, which I would do right now if I was philosophy king, no more factory farms, yeah. that's done. Now meat, the price of meat goes way, way, way up to a point where, but, you know, I, but, I doubt I could afford it anymore, but, or but, certainly uh, not. Yeah. Is this a pre-commitment device to, to not eat? the meat because it's unethical i don't i don't get the the sort of conclusion oh, no of no T- tamler is more worried about checking his privilege than standing knee deep in gore for every meal he has <laughs> <Right>. to uh, <laughs> has to kill kill a happy cow for well look that cow i mean you're right that i wouldn't want to do it and that's a kind of squeamishness but i have no ethical problem with being on a farm raising a bunch of happy animals that never would have lived and then, you know, a lot of these farmers, they don't love doing it, but it's just part of the life, and they do it. And but then why not do that with they, your pets? 
I mean, it's, it's like these these animals. Because like, they, it, we, we don't want to eat our pets. No, but but, but I, I mean, don't have a huge ethical problem with like, with doing it with, with the pets. Your dog, and I, believe me, I love my dogs in very <laughs> problematic ways, like uh, other <laughs> other ethically problematic ways. But like, yeah, I, I you know. But wait a minute. I, so, if you okay, give an I, animal I a good that. life. Think of your you know, dogs for a second. Like, I don't have no, a problem yeah, with anybody no, doing that with me. If somebody wants no, but to you, kill but me you, now but in 10 you, years... All right, but now, you hate now the thought of, like, of, of dogs, like, dog fighting. I mean, this is just abhorrent to you. Yeah. Like, in a way yeah. that, like... Absolutely. That, that well, I don't think they have good lives, though. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, but your yeah. argument isn't that, like, at the very end of their lives, you put them in a dog fight. So, I have, I have a friend <laughs> who... who follow this, this line of, of thinking, because... Uh, this seems compatible with what you just said. I have a friend who uh, he's actually not a philosopher, but he very philosophical. And he um, he once asked, you know, why would it be unethical if I I I'd, I'd like a dog, but I travel a lot and I don't want to have to deal with either a house sitter or um, you know I, I just don't want to have to deal with the boarding it, the expense, and but I you know I love dogs, and so why why can't I go to a shelter and get a dog? Uh, and take care of it, and then every time I need to Ooh. leave for a trip, just return it to the shelter. Presumably, be killed if it doesn't get a lease rather than own the dog. Exactly, right. and just, just, just keep or, doing that. Just do or that you all. Could just the time. have a little incinerator. You wouldn't even have to go like save you the trip to okay. the. So now, what is the, what's wrong with that? I, I, I have a I had I had an answer for this. Is there, is there anything wrong with that, or is this is this totally kosher behavior? Uh, well, no. Putting a dog in an incinerator because you don't feel like boarding it. No, no, no. no, no bring it back well, to the, it's, it's the, not... the shelter. It's like you, you get the dog from the shelter. You take it home. You love it. You, you're there. You got it for a month. It's your dog. Everybody meet my dog. And then you got a trip to, uh, you know, Wyoming to ski or whatever. And uh, <laughs> so then you bring the dog. You dump the dog back at the shelter and really don't worry about what happens to it. It had this a better a month no anyway. kill shelter. No, 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 it's, no. it's it is a kill shelter. It's just it, maybe it'll be it, rescued by somebody you else. You saved it. You you gave it happiness for for know, a little longer than it would have otherwise had. Yeah. I mean, look, I have I have the, it's a weird question because I don't think anybody would do it's that. It's a great question. It is though. a great but, question. Uh, but but no no no, I have, it's fine. It's a good question. I'm just saying that like if I have a problem with that, it's more a kind of virtue ethics problem with it. Like what kind of person would do that, ah, that more than I, I agree that that's like you know from the like I I can I can see from a utilitarian standpoint hey look you gave the dog an extra month of it's like make a wish foundation for a dog <laughs> it's, what a bum what a bum deal to live with Tamler is the, you, is the you last want to read wish the, the fine print on that wish uh, no, I, I agree I, am a, it, I have made a, a lot of dogs who wouldn't otherwise be happy happy <laughs> I, I I agree, but it says Blissfully. something about you as a person that you're 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 capable of delimiting your experience of of you know empathy and bonding with this with this pet uh, in such a way that it, that will allow you to just keep you know dumping it you know effectively into an incinerator and getting a new one every time you take a trip. It's 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 just it is sort of psychopathic behavior from the point of view of of anyone who's had the experience of loving a pet. Right. As you have. Right. Now, I'm saying that if, if we make these cows uh, or farm animals sufficiently happy, they have sufficiently good lives, that begins, I think, in the limit to look like keeping them as pets. Now, it's not. I'm not saying that it, there's there, there would necessarily be no difference, but it begins to look like, uh, you know, we are really looking out for their yeah. interests. We're concerned with their well-being. We're living in proximity with them. 
And then then you have right. to look more closely right. at the decision to go over there with a stun gun and suddenly turn your you know backyard into an abattoir because you felt like inviting people over for steak. And right. uh, maybe you your them, notion of what a virtuous person would be now would change as well. Right. I mean, I, it does depend, I think, on the relationship you have with the animal. I mean, you know, if 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 your cows are happy cows that have all the room, but they pretty much kind of live their own lives, you know, dogs are the, the thing. There's the, no the curfew. Dogs, we have a very special relationship with dogs. They're like they're an intimate part of your lives if you have them, and so it's a different relationship than you would have with a pig or a goat. I, well, I don't yeah, know about that, a pig. A pig might be more similar, actually. Well, pigs are argu- arguably are even smarter than dogs, as is rumored. But but what you're just describing yeah. there no, is, no, no, is right. a bandwidth problem. That's just a time problem. If I had more time, I'd have a relationship to everything and everyone. You know, so it's just the, the yeah. issues. You don't have time to hang out with your cows because you've already got dogs and then you've got a job. But that is that is just a contingency that I think doesn't from have a virtue much ethical ethics. Way. Per- no, perspective just, it, like it does depend on your relationship with that thing right but then there are certain people who would be perfectly okay sort of you know having dogs and killing them and yeah like, but and i'm also know, and i'm also saying like that, that if you had a if you were super virtuous uh you could uh, extract all the meaning of all the ethical content of a relationship in a very brief meeting with the animal in fact during this brief span of time it would take to decide whether or not you wanted to kill it and cook it right so you no, go out I'm into sure the yard that's and, probably true uh, so are you convinced now so did, did sam convince you know, my, I, it, 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 my my daughter had this just from seeing cows separated from calves in costa rica when you were there dave that uh-huh. trip that she she saw these cows being separated from their calves on the road and these are probably cows that have good lives relative to you know american like, cows yeah. and uh she just and she was a big meat eater at that point loved rare steaks and stuff mm-hmm. she just stopped and hasn't eaten it since So I think that's a good way of entry. And I think it is sort of like, yeah, it has to do with the kind of personal connection. I I, I definitely have, I see what you're saying and a part and a big part of me. I think really it's a question of, it'll be a question of just sort of behavioral economics and nudges to get people to to make vegetarianism much easier. And, 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 and that to me is the big problem it's the it's getting people to move as tamler was saying many people who reflect on this probably right you know. well also the, synthetic, synthetic meat synthetic one nudge meat is having a right. daughter that doesn't eat meat because right. then that like limits my choices that's a great nudge actually yeah, yeah yeah well that's why my mom was raised you know in a fairly rural environment and just was grossed out and <laughs> and just stopped and so i was raised with no meat so it poses no temptation what about so do, fish do you Sam. eat fish do you eat fish david i don't i i don't uh, my mom do. uh, was sort of disgusted by all animal products um and and so we we didn't even really uh we didn't have eggs she used milk because of a of a scientific belief that that was a source of calcium for us when we were growing up, but but um, no, so, I wish I ate fish because I, I do actually believe that they might not have the sort of nervous system that I would consider suffering, and that they are healthy for you. Yeah, well, actually, that, I just can't stomach them. That, that's another conversation. I would like to do a kind of proper taxonomy of the, the plausible emergence of of qualia and consciousness and and suffering. You know. Right, like octopus, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, like octopus, we know they're pretty damn intelligent. They that's like killing are. a, yeah, that's like killing a, like a small child. Uh, yeah. They're really, <laughs> yeah. really smart. So that, that would be interesting to just, I don't know if Peter Singer has done this or anyone has focused on this, but just to look at, in a kind of uh, comparative neuroanatomical way uh, across all the species the, and, and, and intelligently assess, you know, what, what is the, the worst sort of um, animal to farm and mistreat uh, and just and just kind of go, go. Because there are people I hear now from people who are call themselves call themselves bivalve vegans. You know, they eat clams and scallops <laughs> and oysters uh, because they right. think there's no uh, possibility of, of consciousness there. Which uh, you certainly could make that argument. Right, I've heard that I, uh, oysters, yeah, and thank yeah. God for clams. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, as I was like me, you love steamed clams. As I was listening to. Uh, <clears throat> to Tamler, um, to your offering, sort of the reasons why it's okay if they're happy cows, and this isn't to give you shit, is actually just, I was imagining the, the very advanced computers who could just take your transcript and repeat it back to you when they were telling you why they were about to kill you. I'd be like, that, that's fine, but that's what I'm saying. I think that's totally fine. Like, hey, you gave me this life, I'm happy. You want to end it a little earlier? You know, I have a bald spot, fuck it. Really. <laughs> right. so at least I, I had a good run, you know? You know there's al- al- the, the alopecia argument for uh, <laughs> the, the utility monster. He's ready to give up. Yes. My, like, my life you're is gonna not find worth- a tribe where where when you start balding, they just take you up to the mountains. <laughs> you start. Clearly, my life is no longer worth living. Uh, all right. Well, Sam, did, did we cover much, it? Sam. Yeah, I think I think we covered it. Right, we will we'll enjoy no. uh, veggie burgers on the uh, the at the dawn of the singularity together. The, <laughs> when we, you know, and and we can. Can you have a steak at least on that day when they've decided right. yeah. the hell with when, it? When we know? ourselves when are being you. turned into soylent yeah. for the, the machines. <laughs> when they feed us, like that Twilight Zone episode, like how to cook humans. Right. And, um, <laughs> to serve man. <laughs> just feeding us beef. Thanks, Thank Sam. Thank you so yeah, much, Thanks, Sam. guys. A uh, pleasure, as right. always. Hello there. I'd like to begin with a fact. A flood tide of filth is engulfing our country in the form of... My dad and psychologist Dave Pizarro. Informal discussion about... Abnormal sex, crime, and violence. Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. David Pizarro from Cornell University. Two guys, one of whom is dominant, and binding or inflicting pain upon the other. I can't stop it. Of we just said fuck you to the whole world. Strange flagellation cults. Shit, next. <laughs> they lack the moral standards and values of our Judeo Christian heritage. I'm a big fan of cocaine, Tylenol, yeah, bourbon. Two guys threatening to pervert an entire generation of our American children. Porn and beheading, like all day long. Corrupting the minds and the hearts of our children. Offensive, misguided conversations. 